Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is podcast episode 64, Crescent Lake, and uh, we'll be taking you back to uh, the area right around Disney MGM Studios and Epcot between that area called Crescent Lake which features the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin, as well as the Yacht and Beach Club and the Boardwalk Resort. I did not think we'd have to do a uh, talk about this many resorts in one episode, but here we are. So I am your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting with me as always this evening as we record, Mr. J.T. Couser. How are you doing tonight, J.T.? I'm good. I love this place. It's like uh, it's got that good late 80s early 90s mm-hmm. feel like into the night so it's one of my favorite areas to go wander around so i'm excited it's got a quite a wide variety of architectures and uh you know we've got everything from the 1800s to the well we'll talk about it I'm and like i'm a, not disappointed by the boardwalk because i never really went to a boardwalk growing uh, up so. we're gonna talk about that too well none of us were around in 1890 so that's a you know i thought it was the 20s <laughs> the 20s so. All right, and coming into from us from Tampa as always, Mr. Howe Bowers. How are you doing tonight, Howe? Aloha, doing fine. Good, good. You're excited about this episode too? Yeah, this. The, you know, this is a. It's funny we were talking about this. I, I never really. I won't say I had a. I was interested in some of the stuff, you know, casually at a time, but I didn't have a deep interest in it. But doing the research on this stuff today, mm-hmm. it's like we. I think we've unearthed a lot of actually really fascinating stuff, and now I'm now I'm actually super excited to share. So I, I have to admit the same thing. I went down some rabbit holes. I never thought, and we're going to talk. I, I fell down the FAA uh, aerial database. So, yeah, uh, f- for obstruction. So we're going to talk about that. And I uh, hate when that happens. If you're on that <laughs> rabbit hole. And I believe he has pulled himself out of his own rabbit hole, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How are you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings, salutations, and for those listening to us in real time uh, as we release the episode, Happy New Year. That's right. It's good to be back. Thank you, fellas, for soldiering on in my absence last month. We tried to do what we could. We were lost a little bit without you, but we. Well, I'll agree with that. I listened to the episode. It was a little (laughs) off, but you know, uh, we're going to amp it up tonight. Something was missing. I'm, I'm right there with you guys, by the way. When 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 we picked this topic, I, I threw it out to talk because this is my. You will find that my favorite resort on property is the same one as Michael Eisner's, which we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, but I, the same thing. It was like a labyrinth of stuff that we kept as you started reading. I, I never expected to spend an entire day delving into the Swan and Dolphin, but I did, and I'm just <laughs> I have a whole new appreciation for the place. It is different. It is. It does give you a different look, and we hope that everybody. Uh, listening in comes away with uh, a different appreciation of all the resorts as well so we've got a lot of really neat nuggets as we talked about so um so some corrections and comments uh, just real quick on last month uh, episode 63 we had uh, ted linhart was uh 
uh, stepped in for Brian Miles last month, and we talked about Project Ninety. And um, similar, to maybe to this night's episode, uh, this this month's episode, we had some people write in and say they weren't expecting much on Project Ninety, but they're you know they were aghast uh, by how much really really cool information we had and how similar it, it was to the you know my Disney experience and different things that they have today. So um, I know how you you and you and Ted really got along on that one and, and we went into some great depths of all the technology and uh, thanks everybody for writing in too. Yes, thank you. That was that was one of those ones where it doesn't seem fat when you just say Project 90. Eh, it doesn't seem like anything. Yeah, well what about the 89 that came before it, you know? <laughs> right. That was <laughs> and and yes, those, those I, are less successful. And yes, as I listened uh, back to the show that you guys recorded, I was screaming at my at my speaker when you were talking about credit cards. I'm like, yes, Diners <laughs> Club was the first credit card. And I think we had the right date for the American Express Traveler's Check. So, so we made sure we got those in there for you. So yes, Brian, our resident uh, monetary presidential and uh, all, all things. Food like historian food, and everything yeah. else. Yeah. We, we messaged you, but you're glad, but glad you're back. And um, just to add to what Brian said too, we've got a whole year ahead of us. I know last year we we did a lot of things that we wanted to do. We did a lot of we didn't do a lot of things that we wanted to do as well. There are some certainly some big episodes that we wanted to hit on that um, we just didn't have the right resources yet to get to them. So you know, here's hoping this year uh, we'll, we'll certainly bring you some of those hot areas that you've been wanting us to to hit on. Um, and uh, this is here is certainly an episode we've been wanting to do for a while and getting back to some of the uh, earlier days of Walt Disney World in terms of. Uh, or I should say, our, our roots, right? A little earlier our, of our roots, of how we got started and talking about resorts. Yeah, and Todd, that's a, it's a perfect time to say, if you guys are listeners, if you know someone who is ex, you know, Imagineering or ex-Disney who you think is ready to share stories with us, yeah. please send us an email at podcast at retrowdw.com and so we can start making connections. And, it, you know, usually takes two, three months to go through this, but if, you know... If, if you know someone who would be a potentially a good guest on the show, please. Uh, we're just four guys in our houses. And occasionally <laughs> we have been blessed enough to, you know, make connections with folks like Raleigh Crump. And when that happens, it's exciting because we get to hear these stories firsthand and sometimes stories that no one has ever heard before and, and get to share them. But like we're just, we're just four guys in our houses. <laughs> we didn't work for Disney. We have no, you know, instant connections with with folks outside of the people that we've already met with. So send them our way. That's right. That'd be great to hear from. All right. And with that, uh, a lot of people do send us stuff every month. So I'm going to turn it over to JT for the mailbag this month. Uh, I know we've got a lot of different things that come in. What a, what came in, JT? Well, this one uh, is first off, first, thank you for all the uh, messages. They're, uh, they're always fun to look at. So if you are somebody that has always been on the fence of, you know, sending us something, you, you have a, a neat story, feel free this year, do it. Because you never know, it might end up on the air. And it's if it, you know, catches one of our eyes or all of our eyes, then, you know, we uh, we definitely get it on the on an episode. So um, first one's from Dane. He says he's our Canadian contest winner. Dane is actually reaching out about the Project 90 episode, and he says that he has a 1976-1977 uh, TV channel guide for the contemporary. And one thing we mentioned was the uh, the camera that shows your children on the playground or other children. You could basically watch them while you relax in the room with your bucket of shrimp. Uh <laughs> That didn't exist, though, in 19. That must have only existed either in Project 90, uh, maybe early, but, uh, you know, we, we don't have anything on this 76-77 guide 
that shows the the playground channel. Um, we do have channel one though. I think it's fun. It's recorded music, so I think oh. that would have been kind of cool to flip on and. It's like your first car- Muzak channel. Yeah, enjoy the carafe of sangria in your in your room there, the the, the contemporary. So. Thank you, Dane. Uh, I will take those images, and we can uh, throw those in the show notes. We, you might actually have those on the site already, too. Uh, and the last thing he added was there was no TV checkout, as we discussed. Yep. Kevin cool. Parrish wrote us next. Kevin is from North Carolina. He says he got a 1987 burn bomb, and tucked inside was a 15 Years of Magic brochure. Pretty cool there. It's got the... Uh, the Chevy, what is this, the Cavalier? Cavalier, oh, yeah. they're giving away yeah, a Cavalier, Cavalier every day. Yep, uh, 50th anniversary of Snow White ad, the old school Disney Channel logo. Oh, um, that's the one with the lines, right? That, that yes. made the Mickey. Yeah, 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 I remember that one. And then uh, it also has those sweet-looking icons, like on a, a smartphone of, like, River Country and Discovery Island looks like a toucan. And there's one on here. It's for the Walt Disney World Shopping Village. It looks eerily familiar to the uh, Lake Buena Vista Historical Society birds. So uh, we'll share that Those one. Kevin. Birds migrate. Yeah, they yeah, go. They're, all they're over. everywhere. So. They move. Uh, I believe. Kevin. Yeah. There, there was a, there was. I don't. I think it was a series of tweets or a blog post sometime in the last. Well, everything in 2020 runs together, so it could be six months ago, it could be a year ago. But there was a guy uh, whose grandmother was one of the Cavalier winners. Oh, and, yeah. and, and he uh, and it, there was a whole thread. I know I shared it with you guys um, uh, for a while. My memory was that it, it had been sent to us. But again, I think it just ran together with a but, it, you know, his grandmother walked through and was the you know magic guest of the day that that her her ticket uh, won the Cavalier. And the story he told, you know, and he had all the documents and pictures and everything. And I think there was a story in the local paper. And, uh, but they said that. Like the dealership called like three or four times over a span of months before she finally like followed up and yeah all right I'll pick my car out you know like <laughs> like we'd all get home like can I pick it up today and she she, yeah. she waited like a series of months that's funny. but he had like the letter from GM and and everything there it was really neat that's so having cool. owned a Cavalier that might have been a good <laughs> a good thing on her part well that's a good car not to have to have paid for yeah. there yes. you go. And go. if you own one of these car winners and it's been sitting in your garage untouched, that would be a fun barn find. But I yes, <laughs> it would be. That would be. That you don't. I'll tell you what. As in terms of old cars, you sure don't see a lot of Cavaliers on the road anymore. They, <laughs> no, they were not built to last. I think they went the way of the EV1. A lot of them. <laughs> they just they just were not particularly well built. And the funny thing is that I think they were the successor to the Citation, weren't they? The Vega and the, and, uh, the Vega. Okay. Vega I, came out of the same plant here in Ohio, if that tells you anything. Well, so, there you go. But I, I always liked the Chevy Citation, and that was a that was a very early 80s car. Mm-hmm. All right, next up, uh, our old friend Kurt Shamala here. Kurt wrote us in. He, uh, lots of ephemera sent our way I've been throwing out here. He yeah. uh, asked us, he searched for breakfast, and he didn't find this photo he has, but this is a... Uh, Minis, mini what is this word? Minihune? Menahune. Menahune breakfast. Uh, it's like a, a certificate of attendance for Kurt, 1985. And it's got all the signatures on it yeah. uh, from Pluto and Goofy. Mini Pinocchio was at the Polynesian. 
And so, you got you got one of those at uh, the the Empress Lily, right, Todd? Like the when you had the character breakfast at the Empress Lily, they gave you something like that, right? Yeah, there was. I have to dig that one out, but it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. So that is from Kurt, and we will also put that in uh, our photo archive. Thank you, Kurt, for uh, that. That was the character breakfast or character meal at the Polynesian back then. Yeah. Yep. And, and it was uh, up, if I recall correctly, they, they they did that in two locations over the years. Uh, most of it was done up in um, what is now Ohana's back then correct. with the the uh, Papipe Veranda. And um, I believe they also did it over at Tangaroa Terrace. Tangaroa Terrace, yeah, yeah. at different times, too. So. It, it moved at different times. Yeah. And I know we have some autograph hounds out there. Uh, so there are four 1985 autographs for you to see on the site as well. So check cool. that out. Next up, this is from Nate. Nate wrote us uh, through, actually commented on one of our stories, or actually the Project 90 story here, Nate. Nate says uh, he looked up that, and the Wedway system is still in use as the subway in Houston Airport to operate and service by another company. He has ridden it a couple times. I wrote it uh, in the summer of 2019. I wrote it. Okay. No. He says, uh, it always feels like some dated area that I'm not supposed to be at because very few people (laughs) use it. That is, that is, it it is, uh, it is a um, a, a very dark, uh, the kind of the route that you go along. And and, and it it very much feels like it was put in in 1981 or whenever it was put in. (laughs) Kind of like the monorail system underneath the Capitol. Boy, that thing, that yes, thing dates it, back it, to the it, 50s that, or 60s. That's exactly what it feels like. Have yeah. you ever ridden on that, Todd? I have twice, yeah. and it, yeah. it's interesting. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a little, uh, it, it basically is a, a people mover that moves people from underneath the Capitol building to the three office buildings that, yeah. where the senators and representatives all, all spend time. Well, thank you, Nate. We appreciate that. Uh, two more here. This last or the second to last one is a, just a quick thank you. Uh, we we did a little New Year's Eve uh, reach out. We got some voicemails, so thanks to everybody that left us Happy New Year voicemails. And we uh, even got to call some of you and talk to you on New Year's Eve. So that was a lot of fun for Brian and I did that. Mm-hmm. that was Finally, funny. our crown jewel of the mailbag tonight. Um, this actually came in, I'm looking at my time here, six hours ago. This is from Jared in Florida, and this is a little lengthy, but uh, I'm going to get through this the best I can, Jared, without reading it word for word. Uh, if you're an Alien Encounter fan, this is this is really cool. Um, <clears throat> he says he just listened to our episode, and the cast members used to call uh, that area the Alien Complex, which included Alien Encounter, Timekeeper, and Astro Orbiter. He actually, obviously, used to work there. Um, so, here we go. One of the positions worked at Alien was to be a cast member who had to be in the chamber with guests during the main part of the show. He says they were actually provided a night vision scope to keep an eye on the guests when it got pitch dark in case anyone was freaking out and trying to leave. If this did happen, we had to squeeze our way through the aisle to this person, and then they had to put an extremely tiny key, he says about the size of like a suitcase, little suitcase lock key, into a keyhole between the guest's feet near the floor. They would turn the key to raise the shoulder restraints and then could walk the guests out. But usually the the show was over by the time you got through all that. So uh, that's that's super crazy that happened. Um, the other thing was the, uh, the catwalk up above. That was a, another position during the show. Uh, they walked to the top of the show and had to shine the flashlight on the guests below. The red light was mounted on a hockey goalie helmet with a giant red light on top and other lights at the bottom. 
It had a switch so when the person was eaten by the alien, we could kill the lights and make a hasty exit before the extremely loud crunching sounds. If the, they were running both chambers, we had about five to ten minute break between the two catwalks. So they would go back and forth, it sounds like. It's always disappointing during extra hour events or late nights when you had to shine the light on nearly an empty theater, even though the video was showing a full crowd down there. Because I think that part was like pre-recorded, basically. <laughs> Um, he says his best memory of working there was grad nights. I think we could do a whole episode on grad night stories for adults only. Um, he says he used to take extra water to the catwalk and really throw it on the guests when the aliens would explode. Like a full, <laughs> I'm imagining like a full cup, just bloodbath. Um, he says one grad night they were shut down when one of the teens threw a turkey leg into the main tube where the alien was. <laughs> just wing that. I thought how I would like that. Um, he says, by working these three attractions, not only did I have the pleasure of attempting to explain exactly what the heck Alien Encounter was, but when I was at the Timekeeper, I had to try and explain that as well, while trying to herd people into the show. And then, obviously, he did Astro Orbiter, he says, too. He says, um, people get to the top and say they thought this was for the people mover. So, um, that was a great email. I know it was long, Jared, but we appreciate that. Um, he wants us to do a Pleasure Island episode soon. And that's, that's all Hal Bowers. Yeah. Yes. I'll tell yeah. you for now, Jared, if you haven't looked on our YouTube channel, go check that out. We have lots of good Pleasure Island stuff on there. Um, everything from the, the New Year's Eve uh, countdown to Adventures Club, lots of good stuff. So, all right, that's going to close Mailbag. Write us anything you want, questions, uh, comments, concerns, stories, memories, podcast at retrowdw.com. Any and all message has a chance to get on the show. We try to reply to everybody, and if we don't get to you, apologies, but we do read them all. So that's it. All right. Well, we have uh, something special this month. We wanted to give away a copy of the book Boundless, Rem, uh, <clears throat> Boundless Realms by uh, Fox Nolte. Uh, she has written a fantastic book about uh, the haunted mansion at Walt Disney World. Now, I read the book, um, and what's Here's what's really interesting about this, guys. I, I know how you have a co- you have the copy of it right now. I do. I got to dig into it. It is really good, and and it's, it's so much more than just the haunted mansion. It, it is. She goes into the history of talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the why it may not be the Hudson River Valley, and what was the architecture at the time, what was the kind of macabre feeling of the turn of the century in the 1800s, and why the lights are the way they are, and the, all these different things. It is truly fascinating, and what's really interesting for the four of us geeks, and as well as everybody listening to this podcast, we all know who a lot of these people are. We know who Marty Sklar is and, um, you know, Claude Coates and, and everybody that we've talked about over the years. She says right in the beginning, I'm not going to tell you who those, who those are. These are for this, you know, this book is for the people who know. You have other places to go to find out. And what's interesting is it changes the pace of the book. We have read so many books over over the years where, you know, you go, oh boy, here we go again. Here's four pages on who Marty Sklar is and no disrespect to him, but we all know what he is. So that changes the pace. But getting back to the book itself, um, not only does she does a great history of, of the mansion itself and every single uh, room and area in the room, and she also goes through the architecture. And I'll, I'll, I'll give one little thing that she came, came up with, and uh, I just thought this was fascinating, was that everybody, where do they say that the mansion was always supposed to be hudson river valley. retirement home for ghosts sleepy hollow and hudson river valley right sleepy oh, no, sorry, Ho- sorry. yeah 
What's really interesting, she dug through all these different aspects of the blueprints, and it turns out the wall in front of the haunted mansion, mansion uh, is called the seawall. And when she starts to put things together, the Columbia Harbor House, probably be because the sailing ship Columbia was going to originally be there, all these other things that as you walk through Frontierland, we know the whole story of crossing the Mississippi. That's Upper New England. And the 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 history, the history of the area and also the seawall and, and the, the building itself most likely would have been representative of a building sitting on the seacoast. Um, rather than actually, you know, in a mountain area or sitting on the river. Um, and she goes into depth of why you're not entering the front door. You know, you're going to the back door where you would be normally greeted in some of these scenarios in these homes. Absolutely fascinating read. I, I could not put it down, and she's done a fantastic job. So how, read it, back me up next month on on my comments. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's definitely worth it. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. Um, and she has announced she is going to be writing another book, too, on another famous Walt Disney World attraction, uh, specifically Pirates of the Caribbean. So I cannot wait for that one. It's going to be great. So the contest is really simple. All you have to do is send your name. JT, should we do self-addressed stamped envelopes? Do, do you want to get mail this month, or do you, you want to do it electronically? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll, let's keep it electronic. All right, we'll keep it electronic. You know, I don't want to so, spread the, the COVID or whatever. You know. <laughs> Send us your name uh, to contest at retrowdw.com. We'll put all received entries into a random drawing, and uh, maybe JT will fire up the old uh, random number generator next month to find out a winner. Should we put a... Put a subject line like spooky or something. So oh, there we go. Identify them. There you go. Yeah. Subject, subject line, line spooky. spooky. And then we'll know it's your entry for the Haunted Mansion. So if you could get those entries in before February 8th, 2021. All right, gentlemen. Well, it's time for this month's main topic. And uh, as we said at the top of the show, this is uh, all about the Crescent Lake area. The beach and the yacht club, the boardwalk, the swan and the dolphin. And as we said earlier, this stuff... Man, we went down different paths in different areas that we never thought uh, we would. So, um, again, uh, you know, it's an area I've been to. I will say that I've only ever stayed at the Dolphin. I've yet to stay at the other resorts, um, walk through all of them and, and experience some of the, the restaurants and things. Um, I know we've got a lot of personal thoughts of the area and um, how it's been shaped up over the years in the specific um, hotels themselves. But, uh, Brian, I'll turn it over to you. I know we've all got a couple little different things to say at, the, at different times here, but you're going to be our, our ringmaster for this evening. So uh, let's, I'll be, uh, your let's, tra- let's I'll be your tram driver. For tram driver. That's, that's a big part of this tonight. So can we do that in an event? Have a, a guest tram driver. We'll close out the parking lot, get some cones. That'd be great. <laughs> noted uh, noted we'll put it on the list that's on the list mm-hmm. retro magic 50 please keep your hands aside yeah. well, well gentlemen uh and uh, ladies in the audience uh the story begins long before what we know today as crescent lake and the story really begins in the uh early 1980s as disney was building epcot uh the tenure of ron miller as chairman of the company right and uh, ron miller was ceo and card walker was the chairman and uh they were under pressure to develop more hotels in the walt disney world resort and they did not want to 
build hotels. Uh, and and it, part of this, a running theme in this story, at least as we discuss the development of the areas and the ultimate swan dolphin and design of the resort area, will be the Marriott Corporation, because the Marriott Corporation was a potential bride like three different times in the 1980s. But the first time that they experienced it, uh, Card Walker had met with uh, Bill Marriott, who is still the chairman of the Marriott Corporation. It's like 85 years old or 90 years old, something like that. His dad is the one that founded the Marriott Corporation. Uh, they met in the early 80s to discuss a hotel deal. And um, at the time, Marriott asked for the meeting. And Card Walker told them, well, hey, uh, we're not in the hotel business. We're in the park business. And... <laughs> And Bill Marriott looked at him and said, why? And Card Walker was a little stumped by the question. Uh, because from a hotelier's perspective, we're starting at hotels because that's what drives all this. Uh, the hotels that Disney did own at the time, which were the, the Contemporary and the Polynesian and uh, the Golf Resort, they were always nearly at total occupancy. And anyone who owned hotels or was in the hotel business knows that's not common. Normally, a lot of hotels are either empty during the weeks or empty on the weekends or, or you know, you're running at 50, 60 percent. Disney hotels were consistently always full or close to being full. So from a hotel business perspective, the professional hotel men were looking, saying, why don't you have more hotels? I mean, you're leaving all this business to the people outside. Here's a side note. Uh, that was not the real reason that Marriott asked for the bill, the the uh, the meeting. Marriott asked for the meeting because they were considering a takeover bid for Disney. Uh, they were considering buying Disney. Uh, at the time, Marriott owned restaurants and all kinds of other things. Natural fit. Uh, Disney was an attractive property for a hotel company to buy because they had 27 square miles and they could go there and build a whole bunch more hotels. Uh, the Marriott ultimately decided that, uh, Disney was too big an undertaking for them, which is funny today because Marriott's just gigantic. Uh, and so was Disney, but at the time Marriott thought that Disney was too much for them. Uh, so Ron Miller, Card Walker, the two guys running the company in the early eighties really didn't want anything to do with the hotel business. Uh, but they did want to build Epcot center. And so when they were putting the construction deal together for Epcot, uh, they hired, the Tishman Corporation from New York City. Uh, and Tishman was one of the premier construction management firms in, in the world at the time. Uh, very experienced in doing big projects. Uh, they had done the World Trade Center in New York City. And there's a list of 50 other things that they were the, the main construction managers on. And what a construction manager does, if you don't know, they're not the actual people who do the building, but they make sure that the subcontractors are doing what they're supposed to doing, that the that the budget is staying on on target, that really that the construction dates are being met. Uh, and one of the side stories is when they hired Tishman, uh, Card Walker, you know, Tishman said, well, you know, opening dates are, you know, construction is always delayed. It's never on time. So October 1st, like, when do you really want it open? October 1st, 1982, like, when, what is the real opening date? And Card Walker said, well, I know you get delays sometime. It can be October 1st, 1982 at 9.02 a.m. We'll give you two extra minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so as you all know, it did open on October 1st, 1982. But part of the deal to get Tishman to uh, do the construction management job here 
was there was a rider on their contract that they would get to uh, build convention hotels uh, on Disney property at some point. It was like an option. So let's fast forward a few years. Ron Miller and Card Walker, well, Card Walker's still there, but Ron Miller is out as CEO, replaced in a boardroom coup by Michael Eisner and uh, it, the Disney president, Frank Wells. Uh, so Eisner comes in, and within two weeks, uh, he sees the Tishman proposals for these boxy concrete hotels uh, that were going to be built behind Epcot and said, no way. Um, you know, I don't want this. He was, I mean, early in his tenure, I'm talking in the first couple of weeks, determined to get out of the hotel deal with Tishman, decided it was a bad deal. So Michael Eisner meets with Bill Marriott. He calls Marriott up and figures, you know what? I'm going to meet with Marriott. We're going to make a better deal with them. They're going to be our hotel people. So what he wanted to set up was a, a deal where Disney would uh, own the hotels, but Marriott would operate them. So Marriott puts on a big dog and pony show. They start working on a deal with them. He hates their designs too. We'll come <laughs> back to that. Uh, so they negotiated for about a year. And then while this is going on, Eisner sees Imagineering's designs for the Grand Floridian. And so he's deep into these negotiations with Marriott and and uh, he decides, you know what? I don't need Marriott or Tishman. We can build our own hotels. Uh, in fact, his quote to one of the guys on the team was, we'll make our mistakes, but they'll be our own mistakes and we'll learn from them and we won't make them a second time. So Marriott was really upset. They're disappointed. Tishman was significantly more upset uh, because he sued them for $371 million for breach of contract and a billion dollars in punitive damages. So Eisner being from Hollywood and being a, you know, a, a Hollywood studio mogul was no stranger to lawsuits. He sits down with his legal counsel and they look at him and say, you're going to lose. There's absolutely no way you can win this suit. Uh, you are stuck with the Tishman deal. There is no way out of it. So you're you're in your time frame here, like 1985, 86. They end up spending almost two years uh, negotiating with Tishman on what they're going to do. And at this time, we we only have what the the Grand Floridian is under construction by this time, right? And, and you're correct. That's 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 there. You know, 88. And then while that's going on, so 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 they settle two hotels. Tishman's going to get to build. They'll be next to Epcot. Tishman would control the construction budget, but part of Eisner's concessions was Disney would determine the design and service standards, which essentially meant Disney controlled everything, you know, and basically Tishman had to build what Eisner wanted. So Eisner, and I'm going to come back to the Disney hotels here. Eisner wanted Michael Graves and Robert Venturi, two very famous architects of the age, to, de to design it together. Venturi was the senior uh, member of the, you know, of the team. He didn't really want to share, so he suggested that they have a contest, and they did. Uh, Michael Graves and Venturi both submitted designs. Tishman's architect, Alan Lapidus, whose father designed the Fountain Blue and the Eden Rock in Miami, uh, he submitted his designs, and Imagineering submitted uh, potential designs too. Uh, Eisner loved Michael Graves' design which was a pyramid and a vault, but asked him to lighten them up. Uh, and that's what led to the statues of the swan and the dolphin fish on top. Now, I, I say it's a dolphin fish. I don't know if we're going to talk about this. Uh, 
I have seen what a dolphin fish look like. That's mahi-mahi. And it looks like, like if you imagine a fish with a nose that ran into a window and it's all smushed up in the front, it's like a, the fish that's on the roof of the dolphin looks nothing like a dolphin fish. To me, it looks like, like a Disney fish. Yeah. Like a so, cartoon fish. Kind of the official line is that it's based off of like old drawings on nautical maps of uh, fish that okay. you would sometimes see around like the legends at the bottom, which kind of look like that. So it is it is styled in a manner of sort of this, you know, early explorer. Uh, is, isn't there some story about the statue being unveiled in front of Eisner? Before they lifted it up onto the roof and then being like, what is this? This is this is not a dolphin. I swear I've seen or read that story. It's actually, you know, now they look at it, it's really something kind of out of Dr. Seuss, like where it would yeah. walk on its head across land. So how you, you mentioned the, uh, the, you know, we were just talking about the dolphin fish and uh, or the, the, sorry, the dolphin and how whimsical they were. This uh, this excerpt I found comes from a, a book called Everything by Design, My Life as an Architect by uh, Alan uh, Lapidus. And uh, this is what he has to say about that. He says, normally a building's high point is where we put lightning rods, since that is where lightning likes to go. Michael Graves would not hear of such a crass and unlovely appendage to his elegant birds. Birds, Okie dokie. To add a cherry on the cupcake, a building's high point is usually decorated with a flashing red light to discourage low-flying aircraft from arriving in an ungraceful manner. At this point, I didn't even bother asking Michael Graves about what I was planning. I figured there was no sense in letting these two gigantic birds just squat there, letting them do so. Let, let them. Um, <clears throat> I figured there was no sense in letting these two gigantic birds just squat there. Let them do something. So I converted them into forty-foot-high lightning rods, complete with flashing red <laughs> eyes. I'm not making this up. We could layer metal mesh in the molds of the fiberglass and, and we pour it into the same principle used in the most modern airplanes made of carbon fiber and other forms of fiberglass, which protects them from lightning strikes. The most up-to-date aircraft on the market today, including many private airplanes and the excerpt cuts out there. So the swan's eyes light up and it's a lightning rod. <laughs> I've never it, seen it, the eyes lit up. Maybe when lightning hits it, it has to they, it has to be just the right time, and then it asks you if you're exactly. the key master. <laughs> yeah. This is this is, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening. These are the rabbit holes we were talking about that it just continues. Like we never thought. So I, I need to find this everything by design book. Um, I, I, the only way you can get that kind of power is from a bolt of bolt lightning. of lightning. We never know where one's gonna strike. <laughs> We do now. The swan. <laughs> and his eyes light up like the devil. Just right shoots the laser gets. beams. <laughs> see, see what you learn on this show, folks. Oh, swans with there red devil no eyes. Eisner. Only so if there are boots on the ground in in the Orlando area, do us a favor. Get out your your your, your telephoto lens and let's let's check out these swan eyes. I, I mean. Bio reconstruct, please do a flyover. Yeah, we need That's, we need a nighttime flyover. So. Oh my gosh! Um, going on a little bit more on the FAA too. There was some other research done, and you know the um, there's different obstruction standards, and um, you know it, it could have been done to as as how you mentioned the light of the building. Um, the Stolport was closed down by that time, so you weren't near an airport or anything, and um, you know it's probably some sort of you know mix of not being near an airport and everything else. So who knows? Who knows? But, you know, those, the devil eyes are there and the, the devil eyes in the swan. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, all right. So, Brian, I, I want to talk a little bit about the layout and another rumor that has circulated that uh, we, we probably should put to rest too. Um, people think that the dolphins and the swans were put atop the wrong building. And do you know why? Because of the paint on the building. I yeah, exactly. The, right. the dolphins on one with waves, and the the swans are on one with with, with the uh, land, you know, or or opposite. Or you now you could you opposite. could have a theory that if I'm staying in the dolphin, I want to feel ocean, and I look across and I see waves. If I'm staying swans with land, I look across, I see land. Right? Like you do that. So apparently, there's a story that goes through that that with this too. That um, so there was a volcano under the water, and uh, basically an upheaval. Uh, that came up under the ocean and and lifted this piece of land and the dolphins were trapped on top of it. A waterfall began and trickled and ran. That's the waterfall coming down, which is the the, the um, uh, you know the front of the the dolphin hotel there, and then um, splashed across to a nearby island. And the, the so the waves that you see are that water coming down the mountain, splashing against the island where the swans. Now, apparently Michael Graves had some sort of story with it, and it really basically went to his grave with him. Um, so uh, kind of interesting. I mean, I'm sure there's other accounts of what they think, you know, the story was. Um, some people say that the swans were transfixed. They decided to take a closer look and were turned to stone. Uh, and others say that they, uh, you know, they just, swans just decided to hang out there because of cool place, you know. <laughs> so That sounds like a load of baloney. I know, I know. <laughs> that whole... I mean the the theme of those two resorts. There there is a theme, and the theme is water. And right, so right. Swans, swans being animals that go on the water, and dolphins be, being animals that are in the water. They both were, according to Graves, it's like those that both kind of personified the uh, the water theme because his his edict from Eisner was to do something that was entertaining, but he was not allowed to use the characters like he couldn't use the regular disney characters so he had to come up with something that was you know diff- different from that but still had that same level of engagement that that uh that graves on the parks with kids and the characters and that's why there's things like monkeys there well i should say in in the old interiors there were things like monkeys up on the lights and all kinds of whimsical animals kind of tied into um into the theme so that way you know there was an a um, a feeling of entertainment in the architecture and in the interior space for both kids and adults they could find something kind of whimsical and entertaining throughout yeah. it so i i don't think it needed an elaborate <laughs> story trademark it's just a freaking hotel well, that had like some cool decor i know i know i mean that's a th- it's it's a postmodern hotel right. it's like yes it has cool stuff and it's remixed and it doesn't need it doesn't have to have a stupid story like that i'm sorry if someone loves the story i apologize but like <laughs> that's just so over the top it's like they were just happy to make buildings with cool things on it. yeah the, the, what i had been researching too is that the original design in terms of the, the you know the, the decor and everything inside originally led more to that story or showed the integral the two buildings being more integrated uh, and that's since changed with uh well, they really did consider it a reflect, like the whole, the lake there and the, they were considered a set. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the dolphin and the swan facing each other and that, that was considered to be companions to each other the same way that eventually the boardwalk becomes an across the water companion to the yacht right. beach. Yep. Right. So, 
So it ultimately was a $375 million project. It was announced on January 29th, 1988. And Todd has pulled a bunch of articles uh, from January of 88 leading up to the ultimate announcement. Um, the And we'll talk about that. But the Swan opened in January 1990. The Dolphin in June of 1990. The Dolphin uh, operated by Sheridan and the Swan by Weston which was owned by a Japanese company, and I don't know how to pronounce it, A-O-K-I, at the time of construction. Both of those companies were bought by Marriott in 2016, and Marriott has been running the property since then. So Marriott ends up there in the end. Uh, And the owner and asset manager even today remains the Tishman Group, with MetLife owning a piece of it with Tishman. And I'm curious, I could find nothing in writing uh, about the connection between MetLife and Tishman and the deal and whether that has anything to do with MetLife sponsoring the uh, Wonders of Life Pavilion. So the answer to that is yes. All right. So they were brought in kind of together. So MetLife, you know, being a giant insurance company, had a boatload of money that they could apply to projects in order to, you know, make more money on top of it. So they were looking to invest in other things to help the money grow at MetLife. And and as part of their deal with sponsoring the Wonders of Life, they talked him into putting money into this hotel project as well. So, yes, that is that is how all that ties together. Makes perfect. We call that synergy. Yes. Makes and, perfect sense. And I'll very briefly say there is a side story here that potentially applies to the uh, the failed Africa Pavilion in Epcot. Because what what I discovered in doing some research about 10 years ago is that Tishman had a humongous collection of African art that he ended up donating to Disney. And I believe it was probably under the idea that uh, that could end up in the pavilion, uh, you know, the, the Equatorial Africa Pavilion. Uh, that ended up not getting built. Disney held on onto it for quite some time. Uh, would give it out for exhibition. And then I think they finally did donate the bulk of the collection to a museum uh, someplace today. So there is a Tishman-Disney collection of African art that came from Tishman's personal collection uh, that could have influenced and reformed or been part of the uh, Equatorial Africa Pavilion. So there's a huge connection there. So it really led to the development of the whole area. It's what drove it because Michael Graves, when he won the design competition, uh, he laid out everything pretty much from International Gateway, the entire design of Crescent Lake and the waterways and the the hotel location pads, not just the one that he built on. But because Eisner was, you know, eyes on the prize here, he had this deal with Tishman, but he had also decided we were building our own hotel. So they designed it so that, yes, Tishman would get his convention resorts. But at the same time, Eisner has... I got this pad here. I got this pad here. We're going to start working on these other resorts and and these ideas. Um, But when I say Graves designed everything, the color schemes, the the furniture inside, everything inside the the Swan and Dolphin resorts, uh, light fixtures, the the colors and the designs on the trams that we're going to talk about at the end, uh, you know, to the to the matchbook covers. I mean, things like that. He had his hand in everything, and and Eisner became this architecture geek. If you've ever read a book about Steve Jobs, how he was obsessed with fonts, 
and and would spend like weeks and weeks obsessing over fonts that they were going to include on their computers. That was Eisner with architecture, and you know, in the eighties, like he was just, it became his like the, the this rich man's toy. It was just, he loved it, and he and he was in the playground here, and he he got to engage his whimsy everywhere. Um, so the I'll, well, I'll ask the first question, Todd, because you know the answer. Those black boxes on the on the the black areas on the on the Swan and Dolphin, those are where the monorail was supposed to go, right? Oh, absolutely, 120 feet up in the air would be fine. You know, no big, no big. Drop deal. you off on the 12th floor. You'll yeah, be it's fine. convenient to all locations. If you just just go down the stairwell off to your left, you'll be fine. So no, they are not. I know people have. It's one of those great rumors that has circulated over the years. Uh, no, they were not built that way. They were not supposed to be monorails through there. Uh, and nobody would do it that high. So sorry to yeah, crush and, anybody's and hearts. You can actually go. But, well, first, the answer to the question is that was part of uh, Graves' thing. Yeah. Uh, he did the Portland City Hall in 1982. And you can, if you Google that, you can see it's got the same kind of black uh, sections on it and different um, uh, colored bricks that were that were offsetting each other. And that's all it is. It was a design choice. It, it was no, nothing functional. Uh, but if you have any doubt, you can, in the lobby of the Dolphin, if you come down the escalators to right outside where the Blue Zoo restaurant is and the uh, fountain ice cream stand, as you're going out the the uh, rotating door that brings you to the walkway between the two resorts, the actual original model for the resort is there. And you can see clearly there is, there's no monorail on it. So it was, there was never planned to be a monorail there. I'd really love to know where that whole thing started from, you know, because that, that's, that one I believe was pre-internet too, when people started coming up. Uh, like, but like AOL message boards and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Like, you know, it was, it was, it was, I think it dated from that era. And you know what happens? I mean, it, they kind of yeah. take off and then it gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And then it's another like, it's rumor like, I, I read about was there's temporary rooms that can be removed from behind the black <laughs> square, like, like a chest of drawers, perhaps. <laughs> That's right. We could just reach in and, and let's, let's be honest here. Uh, you, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do some Google mapping here in a second. I'm just going to, give you an idea of the size of those um you know let's see let's we'll do it in feet it was in centimeters i think we want to do it in feet um but yeah that that whole that whole area if that was going to be a whole it's 80 80 feet by 80 feet that's a <laughs> that's a huge space <laughs> you don't need that much space to put a monorail through yeah yeah so that that's that's not why those are there it was just a michael graves design choice um you know those resorts are massive and and they were designed to cater to a different really to the actually when disney did this their, their contemporary in the 70s a big part of their business model was these business conventions uh that's why the contemporary has the ballroom of the americas and and uh, the other smaller breakout rooms and that business never really developed for them in the manner in which they wanted it to uh and by the you know, by the early to mid eighties, it became evident that they needed bigger spaces. Uh, so the convention facilities at the Swan and Dolphin, I, it's difficult to describe how massive they are. Is it 200,000 square feet, right, Todd? Isn't that 250,000, 250,000. That's massive. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. massive. Have a few of your friends over. Yeah. <laughs> Even plenty of room with social distancing. No yeah. issue at all. 
not at all. Not at all. You can each one can get their own ballroom. <laughs> and two thousand two hundred and sixty-seven guest rooms. It was the largest hotel from a guest room perspective on Disney property when it was built. And it may still be, I'm not sure. Uh, the construction project, Todd, you, you read some stuff on difficulties there, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting is that this actually, part of this dates back to 1969. Um, back then, they had a, a, a relationship, actually, between the unions and Disney. Um, and they basically, as it says here in this article, from this is, about, this is from the Sentinel from 1988 or so, um, they enjoyed an almost exclusive hold on construction work at, at, at Disney. Um, union labor built almost every facet of Disney World from the Magic Kingdom Epcot Center to the Contemporary Resort and the support facilities visitors never see. Um, so apparently there's, this has to do with hiring halls. I don't fully understand unions, so I'm not going to dive into the logistics of all, all this. But um, apparently uh, during the Swan and Dolphin construction, um, it really started to rile the unions up. And uh, they basically they paid substandard wages for non-union workers in violation of the labor contract. And... Um, uh, in fact, this is this is how bad it got. As a result, the, the site had been picketed, and in one violent incident, protesters destroyed a car and slashed the tires of another. And uh, th- and then Disney was basically saying, "Hey, it it can't enforce any of the contracts because um, they're an investor in the hotels. They're they're not part of the. Uh, they're just the landlord of the site and not an investor." Card so, says, Yes, interesting stuff. So I, I I could not find any article about the resolution, but maybe that's news. They'll tell you the exciting, exciting part and not tell you the boring yeah. finish to the story. So, um, yeah, but at, at stake were millions of dollars of construction projects thereafter. So uh, just kind of an interesting tidbit that, you know, this kind of spawned some of that and uh, slashed tires too. <laughs> so Disney has two other – oh, wait a second. Todd – could planes crash into the Swan and Dolphin since they were so big? <laughs> That's another question you got for me. So this was, I don't have a full answer for this yet, but I did find some other interesting information. So by, by rules of FAA regulations, anything over 200 feet needs to have a red light atop. And we all hear that, oh, you know, Joe Rody built the, the Everest to 199.99999 and, and this doesn't have to be a red light and all that stuff. So I start searching through FAA databases, and they have what's uh, called an obstruction database that is um, updated every two months because, you know, cell towers and different things and radio towers are changing. So it has to be updated in, in, you know, probably plain software and different things. Now, what's really interesting about this, I got the latitude and longitude of the swan and and how, what did you come up with? It's 270 some feet. Let's see, 27 stories tall, so 257 feet tall. Okay, so 257, so by the, the rule I just read, it should be, you know, it should have red lights atop. Here's what's interesting. It doesn't exist, nor does almost anything else on Walt Disney World property in the FAA obstruction database, which I found really interesting. And there's even things in there under, under, um, under, under 200 feet. Uh, what do you guys think is still in the database? Any guesses that what is in the database but is not there anymore? So something that would be an obstruction that is no longer there. Yeah. Um, something on Disney property. Yeah. Oh uh, man. And I, it is right, absolutely down to the latitude and longitude of where it was. And is that over two hundred feet tall? Well, no, it was actually listed at around. Um, it was listed as around two thirty total. With a, there's two different heights. There's the above sea level, 
so the ASL I think was 230, which would have been the height from the ground. And then there's the actual, so uh, I was, I wasn't factoring sea level. That's my bad. <laughs> well, you know, I know your calculations are off. I mean, Earful uh, tower wasn't that big, was it? No. And, and, and that wasn't listed on there. Believe it or not, the wand over spaceship. I was going to say that son of a, it is bizarre because it's that. still in the database and there's actually an online map of obstructions. The only other obstructions are listed on Disney property. I could find, uh, were some towers off, uh, deep in Fort, Fort wilderness, some of the new towers over where Osprey Ridge or, or whatever it is that the, the old, uh, golf club. Um, and then obviously some of the buildings over at, um, uh, on, on hotel Plaza Boulevard. So, I'm going to do some more digging. Um, I just found it really interesting because, you know, obviously it, there's a couple of things, you know, the contemporary obviously isn't 200 feet tall, but we, you know, we know the castle's 180, Spaceship Earth is 180, Everest is, one, you know, 199.9999 um, and all that. So uh, yeah, 237, uh, 270, it's over, but, uh, and the lighting pattern has changed on over the years. It used to be lit up. Yeah, so. I, I'm going to say a, that's going to be my pet theory right now is that the original lighting package on on that. And I don't know if they if it was turned off for energy saving purposes mm. or just pre LED days. Yeah, but the, the original in the original lighting package, each one of the fountains on the tops of those towers was lit from below very brightly. The dolphin up on top. And the swans, they had giant spotlights on them that you could see at night, like super brightly illuminated. And even the pyramid uh, top of the dolphin yeah. had huge spotlights on. I mean, it. so on the sides, it's kind of like this green color without any windows. So there's no you know guest windows facing out. It was just bathed in light, yeah. like it was daytime. So it, it could be that they got a special allowance because uh, the lighting was was just I mean there's how I don't know how you, how, would, how you could miss it yeah right compared miss to like one tiny blinking red light it's like that, that's like a thousand <laughs> times better than that uh, Mr Bowers you're on the top floor of the 27th a presidential suite also provide with you are uh, here, here's your sleeping goggles you're gonna need yes. these <laughs> well let me say I stayed there in November and my room looked out across on the dolphin and the room looked out across. The walkway to the swan mm -hmm. and uh the fountains that are on because it's not just that i mean there are fountains on top of the resort right right which is fascinating uh which was one of the things literally tishman looked at graves design and said you can't put fountains on top of a resort. like that doesn't work and <laughs> obviously it does they build it um but my room looked out onto the one of the fountains but i was on well, I was 14th floor 12th floor so i don't remember what it was but um the fountains would would they would simmer down at like midnight hmm. and huh. then like and then go back up at like eight o'clock in the morning i guess so you didn't get up and go to the bathroom all night or something you know, like, <laughs> you know just <laughs> listening just, to the fountain outside. i've heard this tinkling uh, all night I don't but know but actually all of the i mean i don't know what it was back then but all of those rooms they have total blackout curtains and right can, right right yeah, well, the so other they, thing too, you guys had to read this. All the rooms they say up in the point of the pyramid are aren't, there's nothing there. Those are fake windows. So we were on. I recently stayed there when we went to go to food and wine, and I want to say we were on either the twelfth or the fourteenth floor, and I don't think it went any higher than sixteen. Yeah. So I would have to agree with JT. They're either fake or it's all office space. 
they just said there yeah there was no good use of the space now maybe that's the faa thing there's no people staying in there so it doesn't matter if a plane <laughs> crashes into it just who cares i, I think, think this we're gonna have to discourage that this is like the contemporary third floor we're gonna find the elevator to the top I guess so. I, I did some digging on this, um, and that's it's a great, you know, JT. You mentioned that the, you know, maybe those there's no rooms up there. Here's what's interesting: is that their presidential suite is not at the top. Okay, so they say this is the highest room. It's called the Peak Suite, and uh, what's really interesting that the Peak Suite has a balcony, and that balcony is just above that 80 by 80 black area that we talked about. There's actually a balcony up there, um, so. JT, I think you're on to something that um, any guest room above that, there's probably six or seven stories where it gets narrower and narrower and narrower where there probably aren't going to be any rooms up there. Um, so if you are, if you have the, and it's a two-story suite, by the way, so you're going to go up at least one story from there and that leaves you know six, seven, eight of them further up. So um, there's a number of, uh, if, if you Google Peak Suite, you can see the it's, it's pretty nice up there. And, and the windows in the Peak Suite are at least... Um, six in the middle and two on each side, which means you need a you know you need a width of uh, of at least ten windows, uh, which obviously can't be up in the peak. So I can't imagine them selling this room at three to four thousand dollars a night, saying you're in the peak, and then sending somebody up seven more stories into a tiny little room <laughs> for two hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> right? It just doesn't it doesn't make sense. I, I'm not I'm not going to infer that. Michael Eisner saw the plans for the Swan Dolphin, which Disney would not operate. He was obligated to let Tishman build them and said, let me copy a bunch of this stuff in our own resorts on these other pads. But it sure seems like it when you when you start looking at it. Uh, so they build the Yacht and Beach Club. How do you have the press release for when they announced that? Was that one of the press I releases believe, you had? Yes, I do have the press release for the Yacht and Beach Club. So I think that's probably a good place to start with it. And I'll and I'll draw on my thought process here on Eisner copying some of the Swan and Dolphin. All right. So here's what it says. The new Disney Yacht and Club Beach Resort, now under construction at the Walt Disney World Resort, will bring the mood of a New England seaside resort to the shores of a 25-acre lake west of World Showcase at Epcot Center. The two vacation hotels designed by noted architect Robert A.M. Stern are being built on the lake's north shore by Enterprise Building Corporation of St. Petersburg, Florida. Woo! Hometown! The resort will contain 1,214 guest rooms, 52,000 square feet of meeting space, and unequaled amenities for resort vacationing in a group of one- to five-story buildings. The the sorry the 634-room Disney's Yacht Club Resort, the first phase of the project, will open in November 1990. The 580-room Beach Club Resort, as well as the meeting space, will follow in November of 1990. They will both be operated by Walt Disney World Resorts. He's like, ah, 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 sticking the knife in there. Um, complementing each other, the Stern Design Hotels will have two distinctive architectural styles. They will each have their own entrance motif, main lobby restaurants, and retail shops, and will be joined by a common public area with a health club, game arcade, child care, and other amenities. Resort guests will be able to walk or go by bus or tram directly to the new entrance at World Showcase in Epcot Center. 
adjacent to the Walt Disney World Swan and Walt Disney World Dolphin Hotels, the new Lakeside Complex will prove a striking comparison between the styles of two of America's most famous architects, Stern and Michael Graves. Well, how about that? They are pitting them against each other. Um, who adopted a Disney-inspired neoclassic mood uh, of entertainment architecture for the two high-rise hotels the walt disney world swan opened in november 89 and walt disney world dolphin in june 1990 okay uh stern well known for his traditional uh residence in public buildings designed the two hotels in keeping with the turn of the century seaside homes of newport and his new england shingled styled residences in the hamptons uh walt disney the disney's yacht and beach club resort evoke memories of summer days along the eastern seaboard the design of Disney's Yacht Club Resort echoes the New England seaside summer cottages of the 1880s. Disney's Beach Club Resort suggests the seaside hotel of the 1870s. A bit of Americana, said Joe Wood, director of hotel development for the Disney Development Corporation, who is responsible for the project. And uh, it says the centerpiece of the resort is a 2.5-acre fantasy pool water recreation area with thrilling water slides off a shipwreck and a unique snorkeling experience in a sand-bottomed lagoon filled with bass, crappie, and other fish indigenous to the Florida freshwater environment. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. There is a lot, yeah. Let's, let's start with the comparison between... So So Eisner has them building here, and he's like, all right, I got stuck into this deal. I'm going to I'm gonna stick it to Tishman, though. I'm going to build my own little convention hotel <laughs> right over here with all the Disney flourishes that I can fit into it. And do it my own way. So the convention center they ultimately opened there was 73,000 square feet when they finished building it. So it was actually bigger than what was in the press release initially. So he's targeting slightly smaller conventions. But the the way the, the resort was designed, the yacht club side is more of an adult side. And the beach club side was more of the family side uh, in terms of their design and their whimsy and... Uh, but these resorts, so the, so the, the Grand Floridian, which had opened in 88 was the first resort built on Eisner's watch that one they had designed before he got there. The, the Imagineers kind of put it in front of him and he, you know, he had some input in, in flourishes and all, but the, but the essential layout of it and design was already done. And that has a small convention center on it too, but the yacht and beach club were, along with Caribbean Beach and other things that he opened that year, were like the first Eisner resorts. Like, they're the ones that he got to go in there and do it his way. Um, so, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Yacht Club is Michael Eisner's favorite resort on property. It is also my favorite resort on property. I love staying there. I love the feel of the place. I love the 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 low-key uh, kind of vibe in the resort. So... Think about it. Swan Dolphin has this ice cream parlor and at the fountain, they put peaches and cream in, in the Swan Dolphin. Um, the layout of the resort there with, you know, obviously there's a bunch of restaurants at, at, um, at the Swan and Dolphin in the, in the two different resorts, but let's look at the pool. So the Swan builds, you know, all the Disney pools up at that point were really just a box uh, the, the Polynesian had the volcano slide, uh, but the pools were, you know, the pools were the pools. They weren't these men. The Swan Dolphin builds theirs. It's got a grotto. It's got, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the Swan Dolphin pool, but it's enormous and it stretches between the two resorts. 
the Stormalong Bay stretches between the two resorts. Uh, the Stormalong Bay has things, you know, like bridges you can swim under. The Swan Dolphin has bridges you can swim under. I mean, it really does look like there was a lot of stuff in there. And Eisner's like, do this, but do it better. So that that's my working theory on a lot of the stuff that was packed into packed into the smaller package at the Swan Dolphin, or rather at the Yacht Beach, that they, I don't want to say they stole it from the Swan Dolphin, but they just kind of looked at it and said, all right, this is the way this thing is doing. I'm going to do it better this way. You know, I'm going to do it the Disney way over here. We'll add one more postscript here to the Swan and Dolphin. Um, any guesses as to, so we know that they were $375 million to build it. Any guesses as to what they're worth today? Oh, more than tenfold, more than twentyfold, I bet. Well, you're right on the tenfold about. Uh, I'm so, going to say one dollar. Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's this is the price is right. I'd say it's, since they turned off that lighting, it's, it's a little lower. It's a, it's about double. So in 2018, uh, Bank of America uh, loaned Tishman and MetLife 627 million dollars uh, with the two properties as collateral. So. Uh, not a bad investment for MetLife there. They doubled their money. That's crazy. There is one other thing that we should mention, I think, while we're here, and that is why this is called the Crescent Lake area. Because if it wasn't yes. for the swan and the dolphin, there would be no Crescent Because we wondered, I, I was like, so what's the Crescent? Like, why? I assumed it was that body of water in front of the Yacht and Beach Club. And I'm like, well, that doesn't look like a Crescent. And then I looked at, at the model, actually, of the swan and dolphin, and I'm like, Oh, look, the water right in front of the swan and dolphin is completely crescent-shaped. And then when I looked back through all the documentation, it says the 27-story dolphin will form part of uh, the Epcot Center skyline. The dolphin and swan surround Crescent Lake, capital C, capital L. So Crescent Lake is not the whole body of water there. It is literally that body of water in front of the swan and the dolphin. But we've decided now it's everything. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it's it's just kind of expanded, you know. Oh, and I actually have the the actual answer of why the dolphin looks like the dolphin. Oh, Excellent. good. That so we can insert back. Now in Todd's going to have a bunch of edits. yeah. That's fine. Yeah, so you're getting so, this in two weeks. <laughs> so according to an article in the Disney News magazine, Grave selected the dolphin motif because it's been a classic symbol of water since the Renaissance. But rather than make the form serious, he lightened it, quote, not to the point of cartoon, but certainly where they, the dolphins, are a lot of fun, he explains. Classic, but fun. Hmm. So, so, and did you guys know that there were plush made of the swan no. and the dolphin that you used to be able to get? <laughs> That's well, awesome. Now, now I have to put those on my, to <laughs> I, you know, I was never a, like a stuffed animal collector, but come on. They're very, they're very rare, but they are, they are out there. I have seen them on eBay, and I know somebody on Twitter actually has acquired one of each one. It's, it's incredible. That's amazing. So let's get into Stormalong Bay, because that's like the, the main event, the main attraction. It was revolutionary when they designed this resort in terms of resort pools. Uh, as a kid in that era that was the one you wanted to sneak into like yes. it, which now has ruined it for everybody else but still you'd go up, take a bus over there whatever and get it it was all it's that awesome so you heard from how reading the press release there that uh it had a lazy river 
It still has a lazy river. Uh, it had a regular swimming pool area. There's hot tubs up in two different sections of it. And then uh, there was a sandy bottomed area. The one area, the sandy bottomed area, was originally supposed to have uh, live fish. And they tried to do the live fish, as we found out. Uh, well, I don't remember how many years back, but our friend David Carver, I think it was, uh, was listening uh, closely and said, hey, I stayed there opening weekend and sent us the letter from the general manager saying that the fish were not going to be alive to be offered to you to swim through and enjoy. But Brian, when was the this resort opened? 1990. The, so it, D- David says that he was there September, uh, the last week of September, first week of October, 91. And he got this letter. Really? So that's what I, I'm trying to, you know, I, time, I'm wondering time if he's off here. by a year because it opened in November of 1990. So. Yeah, because he was there September, October of 91, he says. So you're like, were they still trying to get the fish working then? <laughs> was the pool down? I don't even know. Yeah, it's really interesting. But anyways, it, it he got the letter stating that they were just having... I mean, I can read it here if you yeah, want. Yeah, go ahead. Read. Um, it says, the, this is from the GM, Antonio Torres. Uh, he says, thanks for staying here. This, and it's this is cool because it's like a typed letter, you know, like a typewriter or whatever. It's a weird font. Um, the centerpiece of our resort is Stormalong Bay, a three-acre, 750,000-gallon pool. It's really a mini water park. When we planned this resort, we intended to have a snorkeling lagoon where guests could swim among the fish. Although this feature has been advertised for a variety of reasons, we are not able to offer this particular experience. Please be assured that all other features of this special area, including whirlpools, bubbling jets, rising sands, and water slide are all available. So you wonder, maybe they sent this letter out for a year or two after because there was literature, there was you know, promos, and it was still stuck out there. So we do know that um, they tried it, And I don't remember if we knew from David or if somebody else had told us, uh, but the fish kept getting sucked into the filtration system and there was there was all kinds of problems that they couldn't keep them alive. So they decided to abandon it. But that was not the only swim with the fish experience that they built. They had one in Typhoon Lagoon, right? Yep. That was saltwater, though, like sharks. And that was the big thing there. Swim with the sharks. Yeah. I never got to do it before they discontinued that. Uh, again, the years run together. Three, four, five years ago now, I think they... It was freezing. Freezing cold. Every, everybody talks about how cold it was. 50 degree water or something. You're just floating across the top. Yeah, you weren't allowed to stop or anything, right? No, you had to, no. You had to kind of keep moving. Uh, so, you know, that's that was the... Uh, but, that, but Storm Along Bay remains... I mean, and JT referenced it, the people who used to pull hop in there because the policy for a while uh was if you were staying at any disney resort you could visit the pool uh and use the facilities at any other disney resort that was the thing of the 80s and 90s as they began to build more of these resorts right Uh, yeah that and then i recall at some point i could be wrong but i remember you know you may use other pools except storm along bay right right and now, basically, you're not supposed to go to any other pool or anything. No, you can't <laughs> Unle- go anywhere. Un- un- unless, they're, unless they're under construction. I know when the 
what was the Polynesian pool was under construction. They were directing people, I think, to the Grand Floridian yep, uh, when they redid that. that. And So anyway, um, the Storm Along Bay, you know, I'm not saying it was copied from, from uh, the Swan and Dolphin, but it sure seems like that they were borrowing a lot of the ideas from from what was kind of laid out in the Swan and Dolphin. So uh, a little bit more on the design of Yacht and Beach and how it's different from the other resorts that Disney had built. The other resorts all basically have a con uh, a concourse and one central area where the dining and the shopping is and the contemporary and the Polynesian. And even the Grand Floridian, for the most part, everything's kind of right there by the centralized building. Uh, the Yacht and Beach is a little different. Uh, each side has its own kind of layout. The gift shops were tucked off by themselves. Uh, the quick service in the Yacht Club was the, the, there was a window at the captain's galley where you could get quick service. Uh, there's a high-end restaurant in both uh, resorts when it opened, the Yachtsman Steakhouse, which is still open in the Yacht Club, and Ariel's, named after the mermaid, uh, in the Beach Club. Uh, Ariel's closed post 9-11, I think it was, and uh, never reopened. It is used for private functions. Uh, at one point, a couple years ago, when they were renovating the captain's galley in, uh, in the yacht club, they opened Ariel's for, for breakfast, uh, and maybe lunch too. I, I know I had breakfast there when it was open, but Ariel's is very nice. You can actually see it right when you walk into the beach club, uh, from the concourse, the walkway, in the center, there's shared uh, facilities, which is the arcade, the Beaches and Cream ice cream shop, which is very popular uh, for the No Way Jose and the Kitchen Sink Sunday. And uh, it's a little easier to get a table these days because they you can actually use the app to do it. But for the longest time, it was, you know, do you want to go get some ice cream? Let's go get our name on the list so we can wait for an hour to, to, get, a t- to get a table. I mean, it's always impossible to get in there. Uh, there's a spa, like a, a health spa in between the two of them for, you know, treatments and massages and things like that. And the gym is there. That's all shared by both by both resorts. So it's an interesting design. Both resorts also have a quiet pool in addition to Storm Along Bay. We'll come back to Yacht Club's quiet pool at the end when we talk about International Gateway. Uh, but uh, they, they they just a very interesting layout. How a lot of this the facilities and services and shops and things are kind of tucked away in this one in different spots rather than all being in a central location. So that was a that was a neat design choice that they made. They're they're both exquisitely themed. Uh, you know the the yacht club dark woods everywhere. The, the with in the beach club there's a lot of gingerbread finishes kind of a very cape may new england feel uh really well done Uh, so as i mentioned it is eisner's favorite resort the yacht club he still stays there when he goes today with his grandkids uh he does tweet when he's there and uh the last two times he, he has stayed at the yacht club so it's it's it is his bona fide favorite i do have in my burn bombs here that at the yacht club uh, each room has a color TV set, ceiling fan, mini bar, and a table with a checkerboard top. And they even put in their chess and checker sets in the rooms. Oh, well, those tables aren't there anymore. But yeah, my my one gripe is, and this is a trend in the hotel industry, but on the last refurb, they pulled the carpets out of the room to put down those laminate floors. And I prefer a carpeted floor. So, uh, But I did stay there after they switched. 
Uh, I think we stayed there for Epcot 35 weekend. If you I did. That's yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and it was. Uh, you know, it's still, like I said, it's still my favorite. Is there still a salon there? There is not. It says there was a salon called Periwig. In the yacht or in the beach? It says it is uh, located in a central area. Oh, yeah, in between the two buildings. Hmm. I don't think so. For I, men I don't and th- women. They yeah, seem I don't to have think- closed an awful lot of the haircutting places. Yeah, I, I just don't think that there's a... I mean, I don't think there's a lot of people getting their hair done on vacation anymore. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they do still have it in the in the uh, Grand Floridian, I think, but... Um, I, I don't I don't think they have it in the in, I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't have it there anymore, uh, but I also wanted to mention the addition of the Vacation Club, uh, which they did in 2002 I think it was that yeah summer of 2002 they added the Beach Club Villas which is actually behind the Beach Club property, and they expanded the Convention Center at the Yacht Club last year actually to by an additional 28,000 feet so that's a little uh, right about 100,000 square feet now. So it's uh, it's a pretty groovy place, and if I hit the lottery, if I win that seven hundred and fifty million dollar Mega Millions, that's where I'll stay when I go. No gold, no cows for me. I'm just going to stay at the yacht club. Uh, the boardwalk existed across the water, uh, but there was no hotel or resort or boardwalk shops uh, across the way. It was just the, the the construction pad and a construction wall eventually. Uh, but in front of the Yacht Club, Yacht and Beach Club, there is a beach, and in front of the Yacht Club, there is a dock. Uh, they continued to rent watercraft uh, until Disney discontinued that practice at all of the resorts except for the Seven Seas Lagoon Magic Kingdom resorts. Uh, they used to be able to rent them, as you know, down off of uh, Sasajula River and and downtown disney Uh, but that was a feature there and they had a variety of watercraft when they opened back in the 90s i mean there were sail sailboats and uh you know chris crafts and all kinds of other things that were out there it was it was a whole host of things that that you could rent either with a a a driver or uh to and then of course they had the water sprites that that everybody had what's a float boat f-l-o-t-e I am. Uh, I'm not a man of the sea. I don't know. And there's also something they list as a tubi, t o o b i e. Well, there you go. I mean, those those are some Google uh, challenges for you at some point. To... And they also say water sprites. That's uh, yeah. pedal boats, sailboats, tubies, float boats, and water sprites. Here you go. Uh, a, I... a Harris float boat is one of those. Is that uh, the, can, the those like those uh, like the what pontoon? we rented. It's like one of those pontoon, pontoon boats. There it's you pontoon. go. Pontoon. Okay. Uh, the Swan actually still has the Swan pedal boats that you. Oh can yeah, rent. that's right. Yeah, and that's included with your uh, with your like gajillion dollar resort fee there. Uh, but they they're they're you know they're like you can get them between like ten and three or like noon and five or something, and and they they just have the little lagoon out there that you can that you can pedal them in, but you can still go out and get a Swan pedal boat and take your your darling Clementine out there and. Pedal around with a cap, with a parasol, and fish for paddle dolphins. boats are fun for about ten minutes. Then you're like, <laughs> all right, what am I doing out here? <laughs> yeah, SeaWorld has them, uh, and they are not fun. It's 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 work. It's you know you're <laughs> you're you're out there pedaling a boat. Um, 
so that, that that's that's but then then they had the beach area they still have the beach area in front of the the beach club uh with chairs set up and you all right well here's a question that's yeah could could you swim in crescent lake when i don't know opened? i was just thinking that was it a that i why? doubt it but i'm asking i mean how would be the, 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 the i do not recall seeing people swimming there ever yeah. It seemed like the swimming was really in the pool. There were people that were sitting out, but I don't recall people ever swimming uh, over there when it was. Yeah. Even, I, even in the earliest days. Yeah. And I've seen enough pictures and videos from back then. There's no like uh, buoys out there or areas that are kind of cordoned off for swimming. So, yeah, I don't think anybody ever swam there. So, yeah. And that wasn't that wasn't like a they that wasn't one of those situations where they filled it with fresh water from springs. That was right. literally probably whatever was left over. And yeah, then it's nothing connected to the Epcot Lake. And, so that beach had, you know, beach chairs and they had little double chairs. There's a couple of swings on the beach and they do campfires down there. And nowadays there's movies on the beach. There were always beach activities and stuff. It was really uh you know, it was, a, it was a nice development, uh, but you were looking across at an empty boardwalk for five years until Disney eventually announced that we're building the boardwalk resort. Do we have a press release for that, Hal? I do. And I'll and I'll talk about uh, that. The boardwalk resort wasn't really a resort when it was first announced. It was really an entertainment complex. So I'm going to. I'm going to put together a couple of press releases and some other information to, to try to describe what this is like. So in the one press release I have, this is this was announced as part of the Disney decade. Michael Eisner is huge. Like, hey, look at all these great things that we're going to do in the Orlando parks. It says scheduled to open in early 1994. Disney's boardwalk is designed in the tradition of the great amusement areas of the Atlantic City and Coney Island. The 30-acre project is now under construction just west of Epcot Center between Walt Disney World Swan and the International Gateway to World Showcase. The following are in the concept stage to be included in Disney's boardwalk. All right, here we go. One, Under the Sea, a 600-seat indoor aquatic dinner show, Extravaganza, featuring The Little Mermaid and Sebastian. Now, if you recall, Disney... Uh, under Eisner would basically go to war with any other attraction that it felt was cutting in on people's time at Disney. So they always say, you know, like the one of the reasons the Living Seas was built was kind of a spoiler against SeaWorld. And ultimately, one of the reasons that Animal Kingdom was built was because it was a spoiler to Busch Gardens. This would have been the spoiler of all spoilers to Wikiwachi Springs because this show was in a giant aquatic amphitheater you there was you know a huge glass panel in front of where everyone sat and the mermaids were underwater in front of you with the tubes and this whole show was going to be done in a very wiki watchy wiki watchy spring style which probably would have decimated anything that was left of wiki watchy springs at that time so that that was one show Second one was called Family Reunion, which was a 300-seat... These theaters are huge. I mean, 300 people <laughs> eating dinner. A 300-seat environmental theater dinner show that involves guests as part of the show when the cast sits with them. So, Oh. Yeah, so this would be sort of like an improv comedy. Uh, and, it's like and a take, 
It's like an adventurers club type thing, yeah. but in a dinner setting, right? And 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 at the time, I think they were wasn't that when they were pushing like the whole family reunion at Disney uh, concept. Like I know there was a whole um, there was a whole uh, marketing thing around that. I can't remember. There was. I remember that being more the late nineties, but because there was a whole MetLife tie-in with that too. I think. Well, there like might the have been. I mean, stuff, hey, I, I was. Think the you know, you were there every yeah. day back then. You should remember. Yeah. So vaguely, you got a family. <laughs> um, and then the third show would be was called disney magic this was included in a possible expansion phase and then incorporated magic with the disney characters in a dinner show format so they're going to basically do like a magic show but in dinner theater um but that's not all also included as part of this boardwalk would be 23 lively retail shops and restaurants that line the quarter mile long boardwalk including a premier thirteen thousand square foot disney department store So this would have been an absolutely gigantic department store. They go on to say that vendors along the water will add to the gala ambience with everything from saltwater taffy to removable tattoos. Jugglers, mimes, and other street performers will entertain. Uh, And uh, also there was a restaurant which called Walt's Attic, which would be decorated with Disney memorabilia. A seafood house, uh, which hopefully did show up there. Uh, and other theme restaurants with outdoor waterfront dining. Dining. Uh, two nightclubs are planned, including dueling, a dueling piano sh- show with audience participation. Uh, and they also planned at some point of having a carousel on one side of the uh, stretch of the boardwalk. And then a Ferris wheel, uh, probably on a pier out over the water on the other side. So this was basically Pleasure Island 2. And, and I think the thought was Pleasure Island was super popular um at least i thought it was they thought it was making a lot of money uh, again if there were conventions going on in this area this would be a place that they could dump into directly without having to have transportation over to pleasure island so so this would have been like a whole separate pleasure island and as part of that um was an all-suite hotel of 300 i'm sorry an all-suite hotel of 530 units uh, with a turn-of-the-century character compatible with the adjoining Bardwalk Entertainment Complex. So think of this as Pleasure Island with a hotel attached to it. But uh, for, a, you know, for a wide variety of reasons, which probably includes, you know, Euro Disney, probably includes finding out Pleasure Island was not really making money the way that they thought it was. Um, you know, they, they stepped back from this. And also, what was the other event that happened that you mentioned, um, Brian, when you were talking to... You you talked to somebody that said he had a reason of why they thought there was a pause. Well, there was... The, the pause... Um, we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll actually have an interview that we're going to play in a, in a bit with one of the tram drivers. But uh, you had the Gulf War in 91. There we go. And then you had the recession in 92. And it just kind of... And then Euro Disney... All of which made all of a sudden made Disney a little risk adverse in terms of well maybe not we shouldn't think so big at the moment you know yeah so that stuff kind of went on pause and it got turned into something that they knew that they could sell which was a hotel and I cannot lay my hands on the renderings anymore but I I remember seeing renderings of uh, of the complex early on and it just struck me so funny how this. Uh, the idea for boardwalk suddenly got transformed into the idea for a boardwalk area at Disney's America, which then got transformed into a boardwalk area at Disney's California Adventure. 
So what we have at Disney's California Adventure, which has now been redone to Pixar Pier, is like two steps removed from what could have been at Boardwalk uh, originally. Right. And the appeal to Eisner, uh, because he's the one that kind of got fixated on this board, on this amusement park idea, uh, partially his you know, growing up and remembering Coney Island and that kind of stuff. But also it was very attractive because you could just buy off the shelf rides and do a heavy Disney overlay on them. And there was no R and D money or anything else to spend as opposed to test track, which took them three years to get it right, to get it running. You know, I mean, it's just, and you're seeing with rise of the resistance now they've, you know, it's a new, new ride systems are always difficult uh, to kind of iron out the kinks and it can take years. And this was a case where they could, you know, just start and they have done that. You know, they did it with bugs land and they did it with, uh, um, the uh, camp mini Mickey in in animal kingdom. And, you know, there's just uh, putting the triceratops spin in, uh, in, in animal kingdom and the, the Aladdin's magic carpets and in Adventureland and the magic, you know, th- th- those kind of things are, you know, they get a lot of critique from fans. Uh, but you know, a five-year-old, they love getting on Aladdin's magic carpet and flying around Adventureland. Like it's, a, it's a fun ride for them. Yep. And it certainly would have been neat to have something like that, you know, rides and just, you know, even an old fashioned carousel. I mean, who doesn't want to ride a carousel? Yeah. It'd and, be lovely. and so, so one of the, you know, one of the popular explanations is that, uh, and I, we've heard this from some interior internal Disney people too, that, you know, as they were kind of fleshing this out, you know, the, the naysayers were like, well, why are we charging at that time $60 a ticket or $65 a ticket for someone to go into Epcot, you know, 300 feet away? And why are they going to come here and be riding roller coasters and, 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 uh, you know, Ferris wheels for, for two or three dollars? Well, then they're not going to buy a ticket to go into Epcot. Now, we know that thinking is there's a lot of fallacy in that kind of thinking uh that the type of guest who might just buy a ferris wheel ticket who's a convention guest at the swan or dolphin and is just out for the evening with his family isn't going to drop two or three hundred dollars on tickets to take his family into epcot uh but at the time you know you you have to consider all of those things and it i think it just didn't make a whole lot of sense for them to to do it yeah, undoubtedly. So what we got instead was kind of a convention hotel and some uh, some DVC and a little bit of everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. Was it the second DVC or third? I forget where it, where it falls in that. Um, well, ninety six. The first one opened in ninety. Right? Yeah, the, Key, well, the, was the Key, Key West, West now? Yeah, Disney Vacation Club originally. Um, so yeah, I, I did some digging on this in terms of you know the history and and going back to. They wanted to really bring Atlantic City. So maybe, Brian, we should kind of talk a little bit about the Jersey Shore and Atlantic City here as that's, you know, where the Imagineers got a lot of their uh, ideas for it. Um, back in the late 1800s, um, there was a problem in, in Atlantic City with the resorts and hotels and stuff. Uh, and that problem was sand, right? So how do you prevent people from getting on and off the railroad and getting into the hotels they want to go see the beach they're wearing their stripy bathing suits right from the 1800s <laughs> and, 
or or not yeah. you know i mean in in the if you look at the pictures of people strolling the boardwalks uh from the late 1800s through the 1930s i mean they're in suits yeah. and ties yeah, and exactly the women are in these big gowns you know ankle length yep. dresses and gowns and giant hats and parasols <laughs> and you know, and- so um, they came up with the idea um, in, in Atlantic City, and they spent about five thousand uh, dollars to put together a boardwalk, and that was some of the tax money of the town. Uh, so what they did is they, you know, designed some concrete uh, piers, steel piers, and uh, put it with the board with the boards across in a herringbone pattern, and there was a distance between those boards, and the idea that the sand would then fall off. So this gave the people at the resorts the ability to stroll, have some sea air in them, you know, get get a nice view of the ocean. Uh, and when they came back in, if they were on the beach, the sand would magically fall off between. And if they weren't, well, they were just walking on the boardwalk. So um, that boardwalk is now a few miles long. It's 60 to 80 feet wide in spots. And the, the concept of the boardwalk we're all familiar with. I mean, it's on the West Coast and the East Coast. But Brian, you and I growing up in the... Uh, you know, the tri-state area and going to the Jersey Shore often. I mean, it's a staple, right, of, of almost every major town. Yeah, there's, yeah, the, 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 most of the shore towns, um, a lot of them anyway, have, have boardwalks, except Sea Isle has an asphalt walk that they call the promenade. Yep. But, um, you know, most of them have a boardwalk and some of them are, you know, not very commercialized. Uh, they're just areas to walk uh, along the water. Uh, and, and uh, you know, above the beach and some of them like Ocean City, Atlantic City, um, uh, Point Pleasant, uh, the Asbury yep. Park, they're very commercially oh, developed. Yeah. And, there's you know, there's there's just tons and tons of shops. So I grew up, you know, I was I was in Ocean City, New Jersey when I was eight weeks old and we spent every summer. Uh, we spent a portion of our time. My grandmother stayed there all summer. So we always went down to visit her and. We eventually rented places uh, for for weeks in the summer, and uh, you know, I mean, I just I grew up going to the boardwalk, yeah. and there were three amusement piers and uh, arcades that I spent tickets most and of tokens, my right? <laughs> quarters in, you know, and playing Donkey Kong and Pac Man and Paperboy, and um, you know, and the t shirt sure. shops and cotton candy and fresh lemonade oh the sausages and the slices of pizza pizza slices of pizza the wheels so yeah uh you know and then there were just there's all kinds of things nautical shops and other so when disney said they were going to build a boardwalk now the ocean city boardwalk uh, let me just i want to have one other thing here too yeah the word boardwalk you know Remember that this, and this is where it came from. This is why Monopoly has Boardwalk on it. This is the Atlantic City, right? Boardwalk, mm-hmm. which was turned out to be the biggest and most important, so to speak, thoroughfare uh, with within Atlantic City, even though it wasn't a, a street. So that's where Boardwalk, being the uh, highest valued uh, property, if you owned Boardwalk, you had all the resorts on it. So that's it. Um, in Ocean City, it's eight blocks is, of it is commercial. Okay. It starts at Sixth Street and goes up to Fourteenth. I grew up in Point Pleasant. Uh, it's quite that, long, but there, oh, there was a the north part wasn't commercialized. Only that center right. portion, so, and then so, it goes down. So, so Ocean City goes to Twenty Third yep. Street, but the 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 shops and everything stop at Fourteenth, gotcha. uh, and it goes down below First Street. But they the the, the last amusement pier is at Sixth, and Wild Wildwood's the yep. same way. Wildwood's Boardwalk is the same way. There's 
it stretches out on both sides beyond the beyond the stores and stuff. Uh, but I expected, you know, having been to Atlantic City, Wildwood, <laughs> Ocean City, uh, I expected when I came to Disney, when they built the boardwalk, for it to be well, obviously not eight blocks long, but I expected it to be two or three blocks of what I was used to. And I just remember arriving there the first time I saw it, which was in 1998. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, it's a Disney gift shop and a Disney candy store and a Disney bakery. And the ESPN club was there and a brew pub and, <laughs> and a couple of restaurants. Where's the uh, lemonade? Where's like, the pizza? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there were a couple of stands that they did. Do, they did have funnel yep. cake. They still have yep. funnel cake. Um, but, you know, so does Epcot and so does the Magic you know, there's They've got uh, games. They've got basketball. Th- there is there is a couple of midway games there. Um, but I, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I there was nothing, what have I say? There's nothing unique about it. Like, it was just seemed like it was all off the shelf merchandise stands and and restaurants. And there was no real hook for me. So... I, I, you know, I just remember kind of that was my first impression of it. I, um, I, yeah, I would say you're starting to get into an era when that was built where you sort of see every Disney resort becomes homogenized. Yeah, it's very, very much so. It's just there's, you know, it's the same elements, just slightly. It's like Taco Bell. It's the same ingredients, just arranged in a different order. <laughs> and it's called something different. Yes, I love Taco Bell. <laughs> And you can love it, and you can love the Disney resorts too. It's it's the same thing, yeah. Now, now in contrast, I went when I was thirteen, and I thought it was awesome. I'd never, I never went to the boardwalk before, and I didn't expect it to be, you know, like what you guys are saying. But at the same time, you came from, we'd see Contemporary, we'd see Polly, we'd see Grand Floridian. This just, you're like, wait, where's the lobby? Where's oh, I'm outside, it, but this is kind yeah. of the lobby. And then you know, it's it's like oh, it's like an entertainment complex. That's like oh, but look, I could stay right there and poke my head out, and there's like a a stilt man walking by and giving me a high five on my balcony. It just seemed like really cool at the time as a kid. Uh, and I'll tell you that that place is gorgeous at night with the yeah. lighting yep. and the yep. it is it that is when it really you know, to, shines. Not to, to like trying to be clever or anything but it is it is really pretty there at nighttime i mean i love walking it and you know obviously crescent lake's my favorite place to stay so uh you know and i stayed at the at the dolphin last time so i walked by it like 10 times when i I stayed there had dinner there one night and uh from the bakery but but it's um you know I, i don't mind it now but I just remember being very disappointed about it when I first saw it. And I think because when I remember Rob and I first talked about it, when he told me, hey, Disney's going to build a boardwalk. I'm like, oh, brilliant. And again, stolen idea, boardwalk and baseball. Disney was trying to, you know, another competitor, they were trying to put out a business. Uh, so, you know, their original idea is, hey, we'll build a boardwalk. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I find especially fascinating about it Now, I know this isn't so much in the vacation club section, but this was the first time that I really saw them do, um, and this is, this was an AM Stern, this is a Robert AM Stern project again. It's the first time that they really took the Disney methodology of making like a giant building and just putting facades on it. 
because that whole complex, it's not really a series of small buildings or, you know, uh, you know, a tower here. It's it's really a couple of really humongous buildings and they've just kind of put, you know, these lovely little facades on it and given them some dimension. But it's it's built like Main Street, you know, yeah. in, in that way, um, which is very different from uh, like Yacht and Beach, I think. Um, so I do want to talk about the things I like about the resort. Um, the 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 drive up. So I both like and hate it. I hate that parking there is like, oh, hey, you have to park seven miles away in our parking lot. And then you can hire a Sherpa to guide you to the lobby because, you know, I mean, it's just it really is a resort that is designed solely for valet parking, uh, which was fine when they didn't charge for valet parking. But now that it's like seventy two dollars and a stock certificate to park, um, it's it's uh, it's a different arrangement. But I love the like the the court of flags type thing as you pull in. Under the Port Cachere. I love the lobby there. The lobby is filled with, uh, there's a roller coaster model in there a cl- of the, of what was it, the old Coney Island one, I think. That's yeah, we're going to talk about that in a up. second, in a little more detail. Yeah. Uh, Lucy the Elephant. There's a, there's a model of Lucy the Elephant, which is the Margate elephant that I love to take people who come yep. visit uh, here when I take them to the shore. I, I always make sure we stop in Margate to see Lucy, who is actually a, what was originally a hotel or a home uh, built in the shape of an elephant. Uh, it's still there. You can go up into it and pay. Your yeah. Ticket. 1881 by James Lafferty. And um, he wanted to promote real estate and attract tourism. He actually built a number of other ones and got a patent that lasted 17 years. And he built some over at Coney Island too, some other animals. So, I have kind a little loose of the elephant in my yeah. curio cabinet over there that I bought down there. As a the roller coaster, by the way, is a, um, that is a model of the uh, something at Luna Park in Coney Island, and it was called the Flip Flap Railway. It was one of the first roller coasters. Uh, it didn't last very long. Does anybody know why? <laughs> well, it is. Burned down. Well, if we go back to our physics uh, classes, you don't make loops in a full circle because of the Gs. So people were coming off with neck and back problems and all sorts of stuff. Not until they invented the teardrop loop did they realize that you couldn't do that. So, yeah, the flip-flap railway was a flop. Uh, the flip-flap. The flip-flap flop. So That whole lobby, though, is filled with, uh, There's, I think there's a carousel model in there. There's there's a, a, a hobby, um, carousel horses. There's a couple of carousel horses in there. Uh, and the whole walkway yeah. with the mutoscopes so the, um, off to the, the side. The two things about the carousel that is, that's interesting that the, the the little one that the, the smaller carousel that's up above on the um, uh, it's kind of on a r- r- round couch if you will um, that was actually turned out to be a it was a demonstration model made by M C Williams um, in uh, the 1920s so that was something that if he wanted to make you know instead of you can't carry a carousel around with you so he made a model and would bring it around to potential places where he could buy this. Um, it was in his family for a number of years. Disney purchased it in 1995, restored it. And um, what's re- the real detail that they put in there is that it rotates at the correct scale speed to uh, the ca- the carousel in uh, Disneyland, which is kind of a strange little... little uh... <laughs> Does it still rotate? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it might need another Imagineering uh, workover. Um, the other thing in there, too, is the... I love this name. The Hippocampus Electrolier Chandelier. 
So it's it's basically it features different animals that might be found in in one of Ilian's uh, his carousels, um, and a hippocampus. It's a seahorse with two forefeet and a body and the tail of a dolphin or fish. So it's like wow, the dolphin migrated over across to the boardwalk. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's something else. You yeah, still- yeah. No, um, and an electrolier is um, this dates back to the gas and electric times. Um, it was a chandelier that was designed for electricity rather than gas or candle. So. Um, anyway, it's got hand cut crystal, weighs a lot of, a lot of, uh, pounds and, um, it's got gold leaf on it. So, but this all dates, you know, if you look around the resort, there's all sorts of other things that hint, um, to the Coney Islands, uh, you know, Coney Island of the day. And there's another really interesting story. Um, and this one I found really kind of neat how it, you know, people say, oh my God, Walt copied this. Well, there are two gentlemen, last names Thompson and Dundee, and uh, at Luna Park in Coney Island, they created um, two attractions. One of them was uh, Trip to the Moon, and one of them was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where using different types of... The, the the Trip to the Moon one was great. They would actually get in a bucket, and, and they would pull you up, and then these different things would happen, and then you would get down, and you would meet the people of the moon, and they would hand you cheese on the way out, because the moon was made of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and then using a circular screen, they did 20,000 leagues under the sea. So uh, it's kind of interesting that that all did obviously predate Walt. And um, so a couple of the, the, you know, some people say that the Luna Park nod is a nod to Walt. And all. I don't buy the connection. Luna Park was part of Coney Island. Um, so calling the uh, that area over there where the coaster is Luna Park is very, very fitting. So, but I don't know. I, I love an attraction where you get cheese at the end. So another thing that I loved about the still love about the resort, it's still there, is off the lobby, if you go down that hallway where the mutoscopes are, which were pulled from the Main Street Arcade, right? I think they Yes. They were, yes. Yeah, they were all mm-hmm. from the Main Street Arcade uh, originally. Uh you get to that little bar that's at the, the first the bathroom's on the right, but then the, the little bar on the t- at the top of the steps uh that's tucked in there. The, the, the it's the it's the one convenience of the resort is that little bar that's that's just for the resort because one of my knocks against it is that if you want anything else to eat or drink you have to go outside uh that the the bakery is basically the quick service for the for the resort so if you're heading out and I don't I should say I, I've not been on the DVC side so I don't know if they have one of those DVC stores like most of the other DVC resorts have where you can get like microwave meals and all but I think all those things are in the gift shop the screen door, it, or whatever they yeah, call it down yeah, there. Yeah, which so so one of my knocks is if they were going to build it like that for the convenience of the people staying in the resort, so you don't have to go outside uh, to, to access those things, is that there should have a double entrance that you have an entrance from the internal interior corridor um, at the ground level, and then one from the boardwalk, so that you keep the boardwalk look, but. You know, it's a, so I think that's, and you know, obviously there's a lot of reasons they couldn't do that where the restaurants are. There's a kitchen back there, but, but, uh, that's one of my knocks against the place. Uh, the other is this, because of the, the real estate that they wedged it onto, it's both on Crescent Lake or, or, you know, the waterway across from the yacht and beach, but it's also along the tributary that leads to MGM. They've, so it's developed in kind of an L shape it's sprawling and it's sprawling to the point where if you're in one of the buildings along the waterway to MGM, I I don't know how long it takes you to walk to the lobby, 
but it's a hike. You know, uh, in addition to not being convenient to parking, because the parking is wedged out there by, you know, all the way out in the hinterland. So I, there's a lot of inconveniences at the resort, which, you know, list people who take Magical Express and don't have a car and, you know, end up in the center building. You know, they don't they don't have any of those those gripes. But uh, I think that, you know, there's there's enough inconveniences there that among deluxe resorts, it's one of my it's the, it's one of the ones I would pick last. I, one of my gripes always is they 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 market it as like this happening place to be a boardwalk. There's games, there's restaurants, there's shopping, there's you know everything, almost like a, a mini Disney Springs or a mini Pleasure Island. But yet, if you're staying somewhere else, you can't really easily get there. Like it's not like a, a stop. Like if, hey, right. do you want to go to Disney Springs? Do you want to go to the boardwalk? It's it's like you know, go, trying to get from contemporary to, uh, you know, uh, Port Orleans Riverside. It's just that's nearly impossible to do via internal transportation. I think it's also one of the most difficult resorts to be allowed to park at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by <laughs> like, far. Like, yeah. you're just trying to go, like, oh, I just want to go there and eat something. Or, well, you, you know what? They, they, because the people there, they, you get to two parks, right? You can walk. With the walk, by the walk, you know, you park there, you walk yeah, through, you can, and, you, oh, I can be at studio i've never done that todd i don't know what you're talking i about. never did it either i'm just i'm just saying you know when the kids i were got young, breakfast before we did that <laughs> we did we did get breakfast we yep. did get breakfast ate breakfast and walked to epcot now we walked to the studios we walked to this okay so. uh, yeah it's we, it's it's tough to get to that's the thing it's just you know it's a you want to go there you want to go see it at night but it's like you gotta lie for different ways to get in there just to you know go get a hot dog and watch the fireworks or something yeah uh, we shouldn't move on from Boardwalk without talking about the scary clown in the pool. Oh, oh yeah, Keister Coaster Which is gone now. <laughs> the, the clown has been retired. Oh, we, we are thank told goodness. The most recent refurb. But uh, JT, what's the name of that slide? Well, okay, so we've all seen recently, and this is uh, going away from our retro times. The they're, they're rebranding it. It's Mickey. It's the you know new Mickey. Uh, it's, they called it the Keister Coaster, and they spelled it wrong. And then they immediately <laughs> put it the right spelling. I was like, oh, cool, a new fun name. You know, whatever. Great. I'm probably not going to go on it anytime soon, but great. I'm glad you did it. The clown's gone. It you know no more spaghetti hair, and everybody's happy. Um, so I have my. This is from 1996, early 96. My American Express. Disney White Glove Treatment Guidebook. And it says Boardwalk opens June 30th of 96. So this book came out before it opened. Um, They talk about the restaurants. I do like in here that it says Sports Club. It doesn't say ESPN yet. It says Sports Club. So I don't know if the acquisition or the merger was finalized yet or they even knew it was going to happen, but there was going to be a generic sports club. Um, And then from there, they also called the pool the Keister Coaster in here. Back then, which I just I'm blown away by. I didn't know it was even a thing. It says large amusement park pool featuring Keister Coaster, water slide, and two quiet pools restricted to boardwalk house guests only. So I don't know, maybe we were just not in the know, but they were calling it the Keister Coaster back before it even opened. There we go. There you go. Because you ride his ride down on your Keister. 
And, and it was off by one day. The uh, The resort actually opened July 1, 1996. So oh, really? They didn't make the deadline. <laughs> no, no. But you could stay there for July 4th week. And I will say, as we talk about it, uh, I mean, these are matters of personal preference. We know sure. there's a lot of you who it's your home resort, your home DVC resort. You love Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Um, I love uh, staying yeah. there. I really yeah. like the DVC wing. It was very nice. I, we had a cool view. It was very comfortable. It's uh, you a know, great I think it really depends on what you are doing down there. You know, if I'm going down there with just my wife and we're going to go to dinner and walk over to Epcot, probably wasn't matter. It wouldn't matter to me. But to your point, you know, Brian, if if it's a family staying and there's a lot of work and you're up and down between your rooms and filling up your your mugs and things like that, then you know it it it, it can get. Uh, not that you go to Disney and you don't question. walk. Where where do you fill your mug at Boardwalk if you're staying at the, at at the bakery? You got to go down yeah. there. Yeah. Oh. I mean, if you're in it, one of the you know, wings, you got to go a long way. Imagine you're staying in the back. Yeah, like it's a oh, hike. Yeah. No. Yeah. I had a friend who was there a couple years ago. I was there at the same time as her, and she was there with her family. And we we met up one night for the the at the time it was this pizza's terrible. You know the the pizza window at the boardwalk had some legendarily bad pizza, at least in the eyes of people where good pizza is sold. And uh, it was one of those nights where I ended up sitting out there for like two hours and I'm eating the pizza like, ah, oh, this is good. You know, you just get so hungry. It's like, I'll eat anything. So I'll, I'll take this pizza. But she was stuck in, in the wings and she's like, man, I'm not happy about this. Like, it's just nothing is convenient. <laughs> I'm like, man, I, that's not my first choice of where yep. to stay. But I know some of you love it and, and you should. It's it's. I mean, it's a beautiful resort. Yep. But So one but, little thing that's tucked away... Yes. That I that I so I was aware that there is a space that you could rent up in the top somewhere called the attic. Yes, which is yes. very cool. But what I found out is that it actually used to be a DVC club members area called the Disney Vacation Club Members Attic, and it was uh, a place that they say was like a grandmother's cottage attic with generations of stored furniture for reading, shore watching, and fireworks gazing. So that used to be an exclusive DVC club, and now it is not. Now it is a space that you could rent out. And I've seen pictures of it. It looks very cool. I had no idea yeah. it was there. If you, uh, if you find the Disney Weddings page, uh, there's, a, there's a website entirely for weddings, and it shows you some of those different small venues, and the attic is, is in there. You can see a picture of it. Um, so we... We can't leave the boardwalk or as we leave the boardwalk without talking about uh, what we think is a victim of the boardwalk's success and presence. And that is the death of the tram service that used to run uh, from International Gateway to the Swan Dolphin and Yacht and Beach Club. And... We obviously can't talk about the tram without talking about the International Gateway, which is our last piece here on Crescent Lake. When Epcot was built, the area that is now the International Gateway was uh, just a green lawn, right? Like, I mean, it was just a, a lawn area. However, the, the waterway, the tributary there that leads from what is now the bridge from the UK over to France uh back to where international gateway is where the friendships come and go uh that waterway was there when they built epcot and as i said you know tishman was doing the building the deal to build hotels eventually was there they did design it with the thought of something potentially being developed back here in this area someday 
So there was a little dogleg uh, waterway there uh, alongside what is now International Gateway, but there was nothing there. It was a, there was actually a flat uh, walkway around World Showcase, uh, no bridge, no raised area. Nothing could sail underneath what what crossed the the road there, uh, you know, between the UK and France. It was a whole different arrangement. And we'll put a picture on the website uh, with the article for this episode that shows you the before and after. What was originally there and then in 1989-90 when they built the International Gateway, uh, what, what, ultimately, what ultimately ended up there. In the early years of Epcot, there were tents there at one point uh, because... Uh, they had the Renaissance food fair. <clears throat> Do you have any idea if they used anything else there? How was, I don't recall anything else other than that Renaissance food fair being there because I, I think that area at one point was kind of earmarked for potential expansion for the UK pavilion. So it just, right. it just kind of sat. So the international gateway opened January 12th, 1990, one day before the Swan, which was the first, uh, Crescent Lake resort opened. Uh, the design of it, they wanted it to match France because it was across the bridge from there. And the area was originally themed. That little waterway was themed to the river Seine in Paris. So the Imagineers combined elements from Paris's beautiful age and a European point of port of entry customs house. Uh, Hence why the shop there at international gateway is named world traveler. And if you ever see the artwork, the original artwork out there used to be uh, like travel posters for European cities. I think it's Disney-fied stuff now, like it's got characters in it now. Uh, But I'll have to confess, I haven't looked that closely on my way in and out of the park. So at International Gateway, it was a second gate uh, at the back back of World Showcase, or the side of World Showcase, uh, between, as I said, between the UK and France. And it was intended to give the people who were staying on Crescent Lake an opportunity to get into the park. It was an it was an added convenience, uh, again, kind of mimicking the Magic Kingdom's convenience for those resorts, being able to hop on the monorail from your resort, get right in. So you had the Friendships, uh, which which patrolled uh, originally World Showcase and had uh, three stops in World Showcase that they would make. Uh, they repositioned some of those out into the lagoon there and started uh, boat service from Yacht and Beach and Swan and Dolphin. In addition to that, when they opened, they had a tram. So right outside the gates of International Gateway, the, the turnstiles, there is a ticket booth there, there's a gift shop, there's lockers, and there's bathrooms. There was a, a loop uh, turnaround for a tram. It was a standard parking lot tram uh, that they, the, that was done up in colors for their for the Swan and Dolphin, the Coral and Aqua there. And the tram would run from the International Gateway to Swan Dolphin to Yacht Beach and back. Uh, We actually, uh, when we put word out about this episode, we uh, met up uh, with one of the original tram drivers from (laughs) the the, the original International Gateway tram. So we were really excited because people have a lot of questions about them. So we did a little short interview with uh, our friend Scott Dieter earlier tonight, and we want to share some of his uh, stories with you now. Hey, Scott, how are you? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. This is this is great. Oh, yeah, no problem. So uh, I worked there for eight years, always in World Showcase. 
starting in 1989, I was on the Walt Disney World College program, and I drove the double-decker omnibuses around World Showcase. Um, I made four stops around the lagoon and uh, um, did that for a semester and then went back to school and came back the following summer. It was the summer of 1990 um, and drove buses again and got trained to drive the friendships within World Showcase Lagoon. And I believe it was right around that time, but the beginning of the summer of 1990 was when that uh, International Gateway entrance beginnings of the Epcot Resort area opened. The same department that I was working in was tasked with operations of the friendships over there and also the the trams as we talked about and i was chosen to to move over to international gateway and be trained there especially since i already drove the friendships back then it was uh, a two-part area there were the the tram drivers and the friendship drivers but everybody did both you get you got the training on on both um both things and it's but the at that time the the friendships operated from the between the um at the time the disney mgm studios and the yacht beach club and the swan and dolphin there was no boardwalk resort at that time of course and then the uh the trams operated from between epcot and the swan and dolphin picked up and dropped off right in the concourse approximately where uh where the boat dock is now and that 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 walkway that's between the swan and dolphin resort that was the loop like around where the fountains are Yep. Yeah. So, well, actually, yeah. So, what the way that it when it became we came up from, you know, where the Skyliner uh, station at outside of International Gateway is now, that was the the tram loop, and so they, you know, we would come in that and and, and park there, and that's where the like the loading queues were, and uh, the guests would load up, and so we'd go up the hill um, and turn left at the top of the hill there. Um, going away from Epcot and then along that kind of walkway. And then the, the wooden boardwalk was in place, but that was it. It was just a construction wall um, from the same place where it, it still is with the beginning of that boardwalk. And so you, you were supposed to go kind of slowly across that because those boards had a tendency to pop out if you uh, kind of went full bore across the, uh, the, the wood. So you're supposed to kind of take it easy, but it was pretty boring. So not everybody, I think, did a very good job. <laughs> Slowing down like you're supposed to, because um, there certainly wasn't anybody out there keeping an eye on you. Um, but so then you would go uh, continue around that kind of semicircle, and then um, it kind of makes a left there to like the Swan and Dolphin Complex area, and you would go down kind of down that hill, and then make the right turn on the concourse between the two hotels, and go and, and then make that loop around that fountain went right in front of the dolphin, and come back so you're aimed back toward the swan and then they stopped and then the guests would come off and get on and then away you go again and kind of back the same way but then instead of going right onto the boardwalk you went up and over that the bridge there that that crosses the waterway and then back at on the at the far end of the yacht club there was uh, there was another little turnaround area which i'm not sure if it is even still there i don't think i've ever walked back there so ever since I mean, since you know all those years ago, but um, there, it was right next to the quiet pool in the yacht club area. There was another kind of little turnaround that you would loop around, and then that gave those guests uh, a little bit closer stop. Um, and then you would go okay. back to Epcot. And so it was just kind of a constant um, 
you know, just like most of the Disney transportation, there were several vehicles operating and you just try to keep, you know, keep yourself fairly well spaced out. I don't believe we ever ran more than two, but if I recall correctly, there were three total. Normally, I think like during like the peak periods and in the mornings and in the evenings when there was more demand than, than you would run two of them just because it was kind of a long cycle and that that would allow you know the guests not to have too too long of a wait um but the, uh, the demand was generally not super high for them i guess like at park closing it seems like right after eliminations there would be a fair amount of of demand but not it i don't recall it being super super high demand but um they were just two car trams um, but the same as the ones, the tractors were the same as the ones in the parking lots with the, the that front opening door. They were single speed, you know, it was just forward. Or, I, I believe that they had reverse, but of course you couldn't back them up because of the, you know, the, it's not a traditional trailer. The the tram cars are have um, uh, four wheel steering, you know, because they're designed for those long seven car trams that they use in the parking lot. They were just two cars in the, uh, in in the international gateway area but they were essentially identical to the the ones out front just shorter and they didn't have a spieler on the back because it was such a short tram just the two cars you just relied on on mirrors to and the pa system to kind of keep people from trying to jump off or on and and there was a small spiel about the boardwalk resort to come and and you know I, i believe a little bit of information about the the number of rooms in the hotels, et cetera. And they, the trams were painted in the, um, very similar to the uh, Swan and Dolphin, that coral and aqua paint scheme that they still kind of use. It was they, they were they were that color. I've seen them as late as 1992. Do you know how long they ran? I was there working in World Showcase until mid-March uh, of 1997. And I believe when I left, they were still operating or they had just gone. I mean, they definitely were operating through like 95, 96, and I believe left in 1997, they were still running. I am remembering now, at the toward the very end, I remember c- going to an event at Jelly Rolls, or not Jelly Rolls, um, the Atlantic Dance Hall when it was first opened, and they had an actual, you know, they had the ap- actual orchestra and stuff, you know, sh- like I said, shortly after most of that opened. And so at that point, I'm positive that the trams weren't running any longer. So, uh, any problem with people in the walkway? I mean, one of the things that occurred to us is that the slide at uh, the Yacht Club, the people actually have to exit the pool area and cross that walkway that you would drive past. So we didn't go on that side by in front of the Yacht and Beach Club. It, um, oh, okay. It, we just turned. So if you look at kind of where the Skyliner is at, at Epcot, you would go yeah, up yeah. the hill, um, make that left, that hard left, along the front of the boardwalk till you get to where the, that end was, then then another left and then left onto the that kind of semicircular road to the to down to the middle um between the Swan and Dolphin and then you that's where you'd make the turnaround, then go up a, again and then to that loop where the tennis court is. And when you departed there you'd come back up the hill and then back over the boardwalk. So we never drove that that path. I, if you look okay, at the path so you- yeah, so when you did the loop at uh, the yacht club, you went, you retraced your steps then back towards the boardwalk. Yeah, across the boardwalk and then back to Epcot, and it was just a constantly running circle. But no, yeah, I mean I, that. That uh, so at the at the Swan and Dolphin, did you turn around right in front of the Swan there, or did you actually go down the walkway between the Swan and Dolphin and turn around in front of the Dolphin? 
you would go the whole down the whole concourse the course between the two and then make wow, that okay. roof or the that that large fountain and i was thinking about it um I believe what we did is I think in order to make the, the turns wide enough, like when we turned from, you know, coming down the hill from, from the boardwalk, I believe we turned onto the, the left side. So it was kind of opposite of, you know, when we got to the, to that, that fountain with the circle around, we would make a right turn and go counterclockwise around it. And so it just kind of was always a little bit backwards from, you know, driving your car or whatever. And you know there was okay. a little bit of, of foot traffic through there, but um, the the majority of us had 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 experience with the omnibuses inside World Showcase, and you know that, that you want to talk about worrying about guests walking in front of the vehicles. That, that yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, so um, so yeah, I don't. I, we never had any sort of issues. I mean, it was it was you know that that area even today. Um, you know, other than the area you mentioned in front of the. Mountain Beach Club, that area along the boardwalk before the resort was open, I mean, it was a ghost town. You rarely would see anybody even walking on that side. So there really wasn't too much trouble. I'll tell you, Brian, it's such a cool story about how those trams worked. And um, we'll, we'll post this to the article. So make sure we make a note of this. We went back and we went into the uh, some of our aerial archives and uh, found some of the, the – uh, original aerial photos of the turnaround loop right next to the yacht there, which is so cool. So, so the first listener, uh, now I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks, but the first listener who gets a picture of themselves by the tennis yes. court at the yacht club, showing the remnants of the tram turnaround, uh, make sure you tweet or Facebook or message us that picture. That'd be great. So, and I'm never going to walk that between Swan and Dolphin now and, and, and not think about the story. You know what I mean? <laughs> And not think yeah, about the tram yeah. running down there, you know, like and, and and doing the turnaround in that fountain right in front of the dolphin. I mean, it's just so like it was mind blowing as as he's described it. So, but you know, the funny thing, Todd, is uh, listening to the interview. We all really had the impression that that was gone by like ninety two, right, ninety three, right. and 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 Scott's pretty sure that they ran pretty much up until around when the boardwalk was was at least being constructed, if not open. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And you figure that was a construction zone. They probably had some walls up and just buzz right by it and be done. Well, so that's, uh, that's, but people fondly remember that train. Oh yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, a, but it's one of those little forgotten pieces because it's been gone for a long time. I mean, you could never do it nah. today. It'd be running over drunk people on the boardwalk <laughs> and, you know, trying to, trying to steer around strollers. And They're not exactly easy to stop. And the, ju- the, not the juggling fire guy. <laughs> oh, and those, those, uh, rental right. bikes too. Right. The, so, so now Sorry, everybody nice. who's listened to the show can think of all the things we didn't mention about your favorite resorts and Crescent Lake spots, That's right. and send send in your send in your cards send your complaints to JT at no. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for all the uh, effort and work on this. Um, I just want to talk a couple seconds about you know the upcoming year. Like I said, we've got some uh, great other episodes. If there's certain think topics you want to hear, don't, you know, you can certainly email us at podcast at retro Um, last year was the year of the film. And I, you know what guys, we got to do year of the film again. There is just still so much. There's year of the film. There's year of the video. There is, there's a lot it's, to do here. It's, it's the retro WDW. It decade. is, it is. There it is. It's a uh, film decade. Um, but I want to announce a couple of things that we probably want to do here within the next uh, couple months as we get into the new year. 
Um, one, we will be doing another movie night coming up soon. We promised you a Thunder in Paradise movie night. So hopefully we'll get, yeah, we'll get that in maybe by end of January here and maybe early February once we can settle on a date uh, and get that suited up for you. Um, we will also be having a special world premiere of a film. Um, more details on that coming later, but this is not going to be something you're going to want to miss. Perfect. Um, so in order to celebrate this new film that's coming out that we, we, we were able to obtain, uh, we're going to have a special night for donors uh, to be able to watch that ahead of its uh, general release. Uh, it is something that you are absolutely not going to want to miss, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and I'm certainly we'll be doing other movie nights. We've got some other films that we recently restored. And uh, Brian, you've got a whole new host of slides coming in the left and right. You've been working uh, on man. You, you, I'm, I'm a, more came into well. What happened was there were a bunch of them we bought which bought over a period of a month, and then all the shipping got derailed. So now I'm like getting things that I bought a month ago, and <laughs> they're all coming in. I think we're finally. I caught think we up. are. I've gotten my last Christmas card, my last Christmas present. That's right. I think I'm fine. And they came from New Hampshire, I believe, both of them. (laughs) By way of Paraguay Something like that. Uh, And all of you, again, thank you very much for your donations that uh, was able to bring Gertie into your homes and help us establish ourselves for the upcoming year. So much appreciated for all that. Uh, And, of course, this year we will have some other options uh, for donors uh, to receive some special gifts as well. We've got some other ideas in the works. So... Um, with that said, uh, how did you, you, you did have some new, uh, some t- new t-shirt designs, I believe last month. Let's, uh, let's tell our listeners about those. So, uh, to tie in with our thunder in paradise, uh, I did two thunder in paradise, des- two thunder in paradise designs. And then also, uh, back in Lake Bonavista, there was a deli called Heidelberg's and I actually was able to find a decent enough version of that logo in order to reproduce it. So, uh, so got some good Thunder in Paradise, some good old Lake Monte Vista shopping village, and uh, we're always coming up with new stuff. So I'm, I'm sure by the time this episode drops, we'll be one or, new, one or two new things in the store. And we have sales coming up. There is a sale uh, coming up, $13 for basic t-shirts. That's going to run from January 27th to January 29th. So if you're listening to this for that, hop on and get some of our stuff at a discount. And of course... Uh, Go to the uh, retrowdw.com forward slash support us uh, in order to find a link to those shirts and other goodies. Excellent. Well, with that said, I know next month we'll be taking you back. Uh, like I said, we got a lot of great things coming up this year. We do promise a uh, you know, an Alien Encounter Part 2 episode where we want to do a couple different things. That will be coming up. Uh, we're probably going to take a cup tiptoe back into Epcot over to the Magic Kingdom and amongst a lot of other things. That sounds like Pleasure Island might be one of those places you know, we need I'll, to go. I'm going to say, I'll throw down the gauntlet. We will do part one, because I'm sure this is going to take a long time. <laughs> we will do a part one in Pleasure Island. There we go. Uh, next month to sort yeah. of start things right. off. I, I mean, come on. Let's let's be honest. How could make a two-parter out of the ticket <laughs> transportation? <laughs> That's true. So you can make a two-parter out I, of anything. And I will. You can split it in half. <laughs> <laughs> and I... I it's the ticket episode and the transportation <laughs> episode. <laughs> and Part there's a whole se- whole center five. episode, too. <laughs> oh, so, man. What's the name of that gift shop there that's the Mickey's Mart? Oh, the little that's one on the it. side. Yeah, yeah. Right where, where, the, where yeah. the Calcan uh, Kennel Center used to be. So. <laughs> yes. All right, gentlemen, and thank you very much for your time this evening, and uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Appreciate everything. Uh, if you can, give us a shout-out on iTunes. And uh, we'll be back next month with Pleasure Island Part 1. And with that, Brian, take us out. 
Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBVHistory and on the web at LBVHistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities.